we have got another one in our X police series today. They're doing extremely well, all of our ex-cop playlist interviews. And going back, I think, what was it, Neil Woods was one of the first we had on. He's, he's got hundreds of thousands of views now on his. And, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people who've been to prison, a lot of people have been through trauma, people have been in crime. And the cops go through all that as well. If you look at some of the interviews we've done within days, you know, the attending houses where there's corpses or fatalities, car crashes... And the, the, this, the catalogue of the horrific things that they see is perhaps more than, you know, any other profession, perhaps ambulance drivers, uh, soldiers, stuff like that. So endless fascination in the stories coming from the ex-cops. And today we've got Matt Calverley, whose book is called Cops and Horrors. And before we introduce you to Matt, I'll just read some from, from the back. As a decorated officer on the police front line, Matt saw it all. He fought violent criminals, arrested hundreds, dealt with numerous horrific incidents and got bitten by a squirrel monkey called Clive. (laughs) (laughs) In Cops and Horrors, he recalls the hair-raising highs and harrowing lows during 30 dedicated years of Metropolitan Police Service, in which two days were never the same. During this time, he worked at the sharp end as a custody sergeant, provided jury protection during a huge corruption trial and was involved in countless white-knuckle car chases, including one involving a rogue Santa Claus driving a flashy limo. As you do. do. From confronting a machete-wielding maniac working undercover to catch the Mardi Gras bomber, dealing with grieving relatives and catastrophic road death scenes, it wasn't a job for the faint-hearted. And we ask people when we're screening them, can you come with at least 20 stories? Matt's got 340. Yeah. 340! <laughs> so it might be a series in the making here. Well, can we please start with the squirrel monkey called Clive? And huge thank you Certainly. for coming on and as yes, well. And yes, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> Clive was um, a Sunday morning emergency call, um, which I repeatedly declined Sunday mornings are prime times for practical jokes and in the central London a woman complains a monkey has climbed through a kitchen window you're like no this is not this is not happening no control room insisted 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 so eventually my colleague Bob and I we went to the scene very nice house in the west side of Shepherd's Bush and this uh, lady said oh come in yeah it's in the kitchen so I went into the kitchen and then sat on the kitchen worktop was a fluorescent green and yellow squirrel monkey um, eating a hard-boiled egg that she'd given it. <laughs> so I said, what the hell? Where did that come from? And she said, no idea. I was doing the washing up. It climbed through the window. Okay, so my colleague Bob, he went outside to make some radio calls to ask for advice from the RSPCA, um, London Zoo, anybody else they could think of. Being a Sunday morning, most people weren't answering the phone. So I was sort of a little bit bewildered in this kitchen. And um, I said to the, this was 1987. I'd only been in the police less than, less than two years. Uh, so I was quite new to it all. And I, I said to this lady, is it tame? And she said, yes, it's clearly domesticated. It's been playing with the children and so on. So I tentatively approached it and offered my hand, which was okay. It's, it held my my fingers with its little hands, and then suddenly jumped on my hand, ran up my arm, sat on my shoulder, still eating a hard-boiled egg. 
Where did he get the hard-boiled egg from? Oh, she'd given it. To, oh, she'd right, been making okay. it for lunch or something, and she'd, she'd given it. She'd looked around for something to give it to distract it. Um, so I'm there, a police officer in full uniform with a monkey sat on my shoulder eating an egg. <laughs> and um, I thought, what should we do with it? So the lady's husband came in with a big cardboard box he'd found in the garage and said, well, let's put it in here until we know what to do with it. So without thinking, I went, that's a good idea. Lifted my hands up to take hold of this monkey really really bad idea and it dropped the egg and just sank its teeth straight into my thumb so i grabbed it around the neck and ripped it away and then yeah it it scurried off and hid behind a kitchen unit and then i looked down and my left thumb was hanging off at the knuckle and there was blood spurting everywhere so i remember then the just the floor coming up to meet me as i blacked out from the loss of blood and the next thing i knew um my colleague Bob had obviously shoulder-carried me into the police car, thrown me onto the back seat, and I, I woke up hearing sirens as he was screaming up to the hospital. Um, and then straight to hospital at Hammersmith Hospital in Shepherd's Bush. Um, we had a great relationship with them. I was seen straight away. Um, and it was thumb was sewn back together. And um, it, was, um, it was about six months till I got full use of it and it was over a year till I got the nerve endings reconnected I still got the scar around the knuckle um and then a couple of weeks later I find myself in the local gazette because Bob my colleague who was never one to miss an opportunity had anonymously phoned them and said you know one of your local officers had been had his thumb bitten off nearly off by a monkey so in the middle of the book is the actual press cutting from 1987 fantastic Um, the monkey um had while this commotion was going on, headed back to the open window and scurried off and disappeared, and it made its way home. It lived a few doors away. It was a domestic pet. Owner left the cage open. Um, and the, the reporter from the Gazette, with a bit of diligence, found, tracked her down and spoke to her about it, and then it appeared in the local paper. So it was the um, it was my first my first scar. In fact, my only scar I picked up in the 30 years in the police, and it didn't even come from a person. Yeah, so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the monkey was okay in the end. Yeah. Well, I believe home. so. I think I had my uh, tetanus jab. I don't know what the monkey got. Yeah. <laughs> and someone just been keeping it as a pet yeah, and then it just yeah. escaped. And Domestic, domesticated pet. Yeah. So does it go back to that person? Does it, it have to go to the zoo? It had gone back home. Yeah. Um, and then, as far as I know, she, she kept gone on with its life. I didn't even know you could have monkeys. No, I didn't. No. <laughs> Live and learn. Good, good choice of first story, Jen. Definitely. Let's go back then to what you were like as a teenager. Did you plan on becoming a cop when you grew up? Or? I always wanted to. Um, I was a big fan of TV cop shows, you know, Starsky and Hutch and <laughs> Juliet Bravo and so on. Um, but I was never physically suited to the police. I was I shot up very quickly to six foot three, but didn't put the weight on, and I was um, very very skinny quite frail as a as a child as a teenager so although it was a, a dream and ambition it never seemed that likely essentially so what changed that um well when i got to my late teens i um as i mentioned in the book i think i um myself and my my friend when we were 14 we were trying to find a lost football we ended up getting chased by the police across a few gardens and easily outrun this guy and escaped and I remember thinking afterwards, he was, that was a pretty poor show by the police. I think if I'd been him, I wouldn't have let me escape. I'd have caught me. And then you roll on a few years and I thought, well, I'll, I'll try and get in the police. So I applied to Lancashire Constabulary and they sent it straight back and said, 
you've got to be 21. You're only 19. So that's a typical lack of detail. I didn't bother checking, you know. And then I saw an advert for the Met that were uh, you, you could apply at 18 and a half. So I thought, <clears throat> well, do I really want to move to London and, you know, join the big city? And I thought, well, why not? You know, I didn't expect to get anywhere, but I sent the application form off. And then um, the process, the selection process lasted a year. It was quite a lot of toing and froing. And the bit that nearly became my Achilles heel was my height and weight. Um, because I, I filled in the form with all honesty, which is my first mistake. Sent it back. And the, the Met then sent a, a form to me saying, we're questioning your height and weight ratio. Can you please take this form to your local police station? Have them measure your height and weight. Certify it. And send it back here. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm screwed. You know, I, I'm not... The Met at the time had had strict height and weight requirements. Why is that? I think it was the sort of 80s, 70s, 80s image of a an authority figure, a police officer. You know, you had to be of sufficient um, uh, physical strength, sufficient height to command a presence. Um, I had the height, but nothing else. So I went to my local police station, very downhearted, and this very obliging sergeant behind the counter, a guy called Sergeant Steele, uh, looked at the form. He, he he measured my height, he measured my weight, and he said, um, you know, well, you're, you're 10 stone 8. That's your underweight. That's not going to be enough to get you in. And my heart sank. He said, I'll put 11 stone 6. And he put 11 stone 6 down. I said, oh, that's amazing. He said, yeah, just make sure you load up on pies before you... Of <laughs> course. Cool. So... Um, <laughs> And then I was called down to London for the two-day selection, and uh, I didn't. I had well, I had loaded up on pies, but I struggled to gain weight. I hadn't gained any weight. Uh, so when it came to the to being reweighed and remeasured, I thought I'm going to flunk this again unless I do something. Sandbags. Yeah, <laughs> I can't gain weight, but can I lose height? So I did. I lost some height when they came to measure me. I just dropped myself a little bit in this in this big suit I was wearing, and the measurement six foot one instead of six foot three. <laughs> and that they plot me on a graph and that puts me right on the borderline between acceptable and underweight wow. so um, I then scurried out before they decided to check the figures so with a, with a bit of creative weighing and measuring I got through the first hurdle um, and then three months later I was I was in I was heading down to London so you said Lancashire I was born in Lancashire Where, what part of Lancashire? I was born in, in Lytham Lytham Saint, Lytham Saint, well, it's, it's called Lytham St. Towners, but if you're from Lytham, you like to call it Lytham. Yeah. So transitioning to London then at a young age, was that daunting? Yes. it was. I was unbelievably naive. Um, I, during our initial training, when I started at Shepherd's Bush, the, one of the instructors said, um, we've got a fairly dodgy housing estate. It's called the White City. If you get a call there, if you need to arrest somebody, make sure you, you back up and your van is all there because it can kick off. And when he said the words housing estate, my mind pictured an image of Lytham Hall Park, which is a housing estate in Lytham, but it's massive detached bungalows with big gardens. And it's to me, that was what a housing estate looked like. I had no idea what a housing estate really was like. And that was my, uh, my, my first example, my first wake-up call to how naive I was moving from a little northern town to the big city. So what was your accommodation like when you got there? Well, the, the first uh, 20 weeks, I was at Wanstead in East London in the training school. Um, and it was um, there was a photo of my room, actually, in the book on the seventh floor. It was um, basic, but 
you know, adequate. It had a, a bed and a desk and a, a wash basin, uh, which I'm told for some people doubled as a urinal, but I can't oh, comment on that. Nice. Mm. <laughs> Looks not much uh, different from a prison cell. <laughs> it's probably slightly smaller, I think. It's quite smaller. smaller than a prison cell, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. And communal showers on the same floor, you know, and that sort of thing. And then when I finished my training, I was posted to Paddington Green Section House in, in central London on the 11th floor, which was a, a room slightly smaller than that, um, with a view of um, nine lanes of traffic outside the window, uh, the Marylebone fly over the Edgware Road, and, and it was so totally different from growing up in a, in a picturesque. Little, picturesque little town, mm. seaside town. And the only time I would ever experience actual silence was when I went home for a weekend. So I'd spent three weeks, three, four weeks in London, constant noise, either on duty or in my accommodation. And then going home was the only way I could get peace and quiet. So what were your workmates like back then? They were a, a proper mixed bunch. Um, they were at, um, at Shepherd's Bush, there was um, some very inspirational characters. There's a, there's one chapter dedicated to my colleague, Bob, who is, he's passed away now, but he... Um, when I, I think he joined the police in 1962, he was very you know, proper old sweat. Lost none of his enthusiasm for frontline policing. Uh, I learnt an awful lot from him, in particular um, how much I really, really wanted to drive fast cars the way he drove them. Um, and there are other colleagues for whom probationers are seen as a, a burden. Uh, you, you just, if you're posted with them, you just know to keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. And there's some who fell foul of their own laws. And I'm getting end up getting kicked out, arrested. Drink drive was a common downfall, but generally speaking, a really really good bunch. How soon before you encountered a corpse? Uh, I was probably about. Um, I did my this thing six six months basic training, ten week street duties. So probably about nine months in uh, when I got sent to my first sudden death, and it was the one where um, <clears throat> an elderly chap been up on his roof, eighty two years old up on his roof of his two-story house, fixing a loose tile. He was a very, very sprightly. Um, it appears from the, the post-mortem he'd had a massive heart attack on the roof. Oh, no. So he was probably dead before he hit the ground, but he landed on a, He'd come down off the roof vertically, landed on his head, and his head had been pushed down his spine like a cocktail onion on a stick um, in front of his, his wife. Oh, was, no. she, was, she was in the this big patio doors through to the dining room. She sat in the dining room while... He's up on the roof, and all of a sudden she sees, boom, he just lands on his head in front of the patio doors, splattering the patio doors with blood and brain tissue. Sent from a yeah. horror movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I I turned up just as the ambulance crew were leaving, um, and they were like, it's not one for us, because they they don't remove dead people, they just remove the living. Um, and then so I, I took the widow in, well, the widow, new widow, into the front room away from it, and I said, I'm just going to, Doing some, go and do some investigation. I'll be right back. So I went out the back onto the patio, and it was a scene from a horror movie, as you said. This, um, it was comforting subsequent, subsequently to know that, that he was dead before he'd even hit the floor. Um, and then the undertakers came, and they picked up the body and took it away. And then I realised there's a there's a problem here because neither the undertakers nor the paramedics are responsible for cleaning up. In fact, it's actually down to the widow. I thought this is not okay. You know, not having her cleaning her husband's brains and blood from the patio and the patio doors. So I got the garden hose out, hosed it all away onto the flower beds, figuring it couldn't do any harm. Cleaned it all up, 
Um, next of kin had been called. She was on her way from the county on the train down to London. Her, her daughter, their daughter. Um, so I, what, when she was in the good hands of neighbours, I left her to it, went and wrote my report and thought uh, nothing more of it until about a year later when, again, somebody sort of passed me a local paper in the police station and it was uh, about a, an elderly widow who'd been tending a garden in the spring and had dug up a set of false teeth. Oh, that looked suspiciously like her late husband's. And I'm sort of thinking, well... No way. I thought, well, almost certainly me. I thought, because I, I didn't... I mean, there's a lot of mess. There was bone fragments, blood, brain. I just hosed the whole lot into the, into the garden and dug it over a bit. And um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I thought, my first thought was, can I get in trouble for this? But um, I didn't, fortunately. You know, she seemed to sort of take it in good humour, but... <laughs> but you, you, you think these things, are, no two days are the same. You think that a day's finished, you move on to the next thing, and then a year later this comes back to, I would say it comes back to bite you, but that would be a, a, a pun too far. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, well. So arriving at that scene and absorbing what you saw, did that affect you psychologically, or were you steeled and trained to encounter things like that? It didn't affect me psychologically, which I was quite surprised about. Um, we had... Um, my journey to get to this point of, of death was at training school. They showed us various photo albums, um, one of which has a, still has a question mark hanging over it, which I can come back to. Uh, the second one was we wanted to see a post-mortem, which um, was, I found absolutely fascinating because um, the anatomy of the body and how it all fits together and works, I found could, very could fascinating. Could you take us through that, what you saw at the post-mortem? Post-mortem, yeah. We, we, there was my myself my seven colleagues who were all, dispatched from training school to Shepherd's Bush. Um, we went to Fulham Mortuary. Um, we were shown in by the pathologist. There were three bodies laid out. There was um, a woman in her 40s who'd had a um, heroin crack overdose. Mm. There was a eight-month-old cot death victim. Oh, yeah. oh, that's really sad. And Yeah. And the third table was a, a man in his 80s who'd died of heart attack, natural causes, and that was the one they were going to do. So... We all stand around, all looking a little bit pale. For most of us, it was the first time we'd seen a body, and now we're about to see one dismantled before our eyes. Um, so it was a case of deep breath, you know. And so the, the first, the, it's not a pathologist at first, it's a mortuary technician who prepares the body, and the pathologist comes in and does the examination. So the technician was talking us through, cuts open the chest like a zip down the scalpel, bolt croppers to take the ribs out and the sternum, and then takes out the individual organs one at a time, puts them in steel bowls, they get weighed, and then, and then subsequently examined. Um, and I was fine with all this. I was fascinated by how it all fits together. There was a couple of my colleagues were looking a bit green. but uh, And then came the um, the head. And so this is where I learned <laughs> something. The, the technician, he cut around the back of the scalp, and then I didn't know this face is not attached to the skull. It just literally just peel, peels off. So, having done the cut, just rolled the skin forward and the whole face just rolls off. Oh, and then not got, attached. It's not attached. Way? I never knew the face is not attached to the skull. I, know I never no. knew that. No. So, and then he said, now we need to get the brain out. So, he got a, a, a circular saw and started to cut around the top of the skull to get the brain out. And this is where I reached my limit when a, a piece of bloody gristle flew off the saw, hit me on the cheek. Oh. So, I got a lump of bloody gristle bone on my cheek. So, I just ran to the sink and started scrubbing like it was nuclear fallout and paper towels and rubbed it away. And then I sort of, I'm done. I sat on a chair and I'm, I'll sit the rest of this one out. 
Was anyone sick? Yeah, one one uh, one guy was like leaning over the. I don't know if he was actually sick, but he's certainly leaning over the sink in preparation. Um, and that was my um, uh, my wake up to the the true horrors that awaited me. So the face is just like a rubber mask. It's just a rubber mask. Peels off, it peels like off. Yeah, rolls off, leaves the eyes behind. But oh, uh, yeah, that's it's really quite freaky. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was quite, quite, quite freaky. Did you see the anything? Uh, the eight-month-old get cut open. Then? No, we no, just saw this one. Those had three. That'd be too much. That one. Yeah, that would be horrendous. Three, three on the tables, ready for. Um, they were doing, going to do three, one after the other, but we only stayed for the first one, which was the old man, yeah. who was considered to be the less, less trauma, least traumatic of the three. So, do you think you're naturally predisposed then to deal with the macabre? And- it became apparent, yes. Um, I've always found I was I was better dealing with um, the the blood and gut side of a of a of a death than the traumatic uh, emotional family side and um, trying to support bereaved families, uh, never knowing what to say or um, try not to put my foot in it. I was better just just leave me with the body and I'll deal with that. When was the first time you had to go tell a family? Um, the first time was um, on, when I was on my 10-week street duties course. There's two of myself and another constable, a guy called Dave. We went to um, deliver a death message to a lady whose um, husband had been killed in a car crash. He'd gone down to Hampshire on, to work and he'd been killed in a car crash. It was We used to take it in turns with jobs. It wasn't my turn to do this one I'm really pleased about. But we um, called this block of flats, got this lady at the door. And my colleague launched straight into, I'm really sorry to tell you, you know, your husband's been killed in a car crash this morning. And she sort of sort of collapsed in tears and then said, did you say car crash? Um, and he said, uh, yes, in Hampshire. And she said, he got the train into London this morning. And then we checked the door. We were at the wrong flat. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So due diligence, I kind of took a back seat for that one. And I'm really glad it wasn't me that did that. It was uh, it was his turn. So, um you could say that's my first experience of how not to do a death message, I think. Because imagine if she like, had a heart attack on that, that news or something. Uh, yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, you can oh, imagine yeah. she might have started crying. Or not. Yeah. So yeah. In, in that first year then, you know, what challenges presented themselves to you or what situations were... Out of your 340 dicey. stories. Out of my 340 <laughs> stories. In the, first, in the early years, what were the major ones? Um... I think it was is a, a case of um, doing first. I think doing the first sudden death, the first foot chase, um, the, the first arrest for this, the first arrest for that. Um, because each time you arrest somebody for a different offence, you are completely out of out of the um, out of your comfort zone. You take them before the custody sergeant. You don't know what to say. You don't know what the elements are. You should be saying, "My first arrest for driving while disqualified." Was uh, I recognised the car driving towards me? It had been on the daily briefing as being owned by a disqualified driver. So I stopped the car. The guy got out, asked him for his name. He gave me a name that I knew was false. So I challenged him, and he turned and sprinted away. So I I chased after him onto the White City Estate, and he he made it to his front door, tried to shut it, but failed. I barged in, arrested him, um, handcuffed him, took him before the custody sergeant. Job done, as I thought. Um, told the custody sergeant, and he sort of. Bear in mind, I was at this point, I'd only a few months' service. Put his pen down, folded his arms, looked at me in front of the prisoner and said, wrong. What? That was that. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, I'm like, he's disqualified driver, Sarge. I've arrested him for driving a car on the road while disqualified. 
And he said, yeah, but this, the law only allows a power of arrest in immediate pursuit. And I said, well, I chased him all the way to his front door and arrested him after the chase. I, I never lost sight of him. And Simon's like, well, you didn't say that, did you? And then carried on. So um, embarrassing probations in front of prisoners seems to be a, a bit of a, a bit of a sport. Oh, oh my God. So um, that was the foot chase then, did you say? Yes. So what was the next? Like, did you have to get in fights with people and stuff like that and rough and tumble stuff? Well, actually, what was? Your, yeah. can you remember your first arrest? My first arrest uh, was um, a uh, using a technique called the five negatives, which um, the uh, I was on foot patrol a few so a few weeks into my street duty training course, and the inspector pulled up alongside his car, and he was a very brusque northerner. He said, "Oi, you had an arrest yet?" I'm like, uh, "Not yet, sir. No." He said, "Right, get in. We'll go and get one." <laughs> um, he said, "Do you know what the five negatives are?" I'm like. No. Nope. He said, right, he said, you you stop a car. Your first negative is no tax disc. You know, obviously, cars used to have tax discs, you know. Now they don't, but they do, used to. If the car's got no tax disc or it's out of date, you pull the car over. That's your first negative. Um, you ask the driver, has he got his driving license on him? If he hasn't, that's the second one. Ask him, has he got any other identification on him? If he hasn't got any identification on him, that's your third negative. Your fourth one, is his name and address the same as the registered owner of the car? If that's a no, you're on to the fifth one, which is can he tell you who the registered owner of the car is? And if you have no to all those five questions, you just arrest the driver. I said, what do you arrest him for? He said, whatever you want. Stealing the car, driving while disqualified, no insurance. It's bound to be something. Uh, and he was absolutely right. So I took this guy, this first guy, who the car had no tax disc, went through the five negatives and took him in. And um, I said to the custody sergeant, this is why I've arrested him. Blah, blah. And uh, I started waffling, and the custody sergeant said, Look, was it five negatives? I said, uh, Yes, sergeant. Right, okay. What's I need to know? Um, and the guy eventually said, Okay, fine. He says, I got no tax. I can't get tax because I got no insurance. I got no insurance because I'm on a ban for drink driving. Um, I shouldn't be driving. Um, and I thought, Bingo, system worked. Five negatives works. He's a, he's a disqualified driver. And he, he ended up, he got a, a month in prison and um, an extra year on his ban, I think. Um, and that was my first arrest. And from then on, I used five negatives numerous times. And every single time, there was some law being broken. Every time. Of course. What was your first like, really hurry moment or like close shave? Uh, the well, the machete attack was a fairly close yeah. shave. Um, that's the, there was a guy in the news recently uh, called Stuart Otten, I think, uh, dubbed Britain's toughest cop. He was proper attack with a machete. Um, mine wasn't anywhere near that level. Mine was. Um, a call to a neighbour disturbance one evening um, in a quite residential street in Shepherd's Bush. And um, I walked down this very dark street. One of the, I didn't know at the time, this one guy had pulled a machete out and the other guy had run indoors and locked the door. So I'm walking into a situation where there's just one guy. It was very dark. I couldn't see what was going on. And I saw this guy start sharpening the machete on the garden wall, swiping it backwards and forwards. Um, so I sort of, Against my better judgment, which should have been to back off and get some backup armed response or dog handler or something, um, I challenged him. And he, he charged straight towards me with his machete raised. And the only thing that saved me was the fact that he was absolutely bladdered. He could he could barely stand, let alone w- run. So he was very stag- um, wobbly on his feet. So I managed to um, block his blow and he dropped the machete and I handcuffed him and everything. And... Um, he was he was swearing about the neighbour having an affair with his wife and blah blah blah. 
So he was quite an old chap in his 60s. Um, so that was my... Afterwards, I remember thinking, Christ, you know, I, I could have been killed. I could have lost an arm or leg. I thought... Then I thought, well, could I? You know, he was... He was he was he was clearly very um, inebriated, but I thought, yeah, I should have should have backed off, but I didn't. Uh, anyway, my my sergeant submitted me for a commendation for that, and um, <clears throat> it got as far as the desk jockey chief inspector who said, no, the guy was drunk and he was sixty. How much damage could he really have caused with a machete? I'm like, okay, you you, you keep your nine to five desk job and <laughs> let the rest of us do the front line. Yeah. So this chap to think like a criminal. Can man. I quickly have a? I'm going to whip to the toilet. Yeah, I'll keep going. Think, think like a criminal. Yes. What happens in that chapter? That was um, trying to get inside um, criminals' heads and um, sort of work out if you're going to, if you're trying to investigate a crime, work out what would they have done. You know, would it be because most crime is opportunistic. Um, this um, there's a, a story later on where um, I was sent to a, burg- a burglary, which um, turned out to be not all it seemed. I went to this basement flat, and there'd be no sign of forced entry. It's like the door had been left open. Um, it was actually a, a trap, an integrity trap. What? For could have been anybody. They just asked for any offers. Um, I've leapt ahead a bit here, but I'll rewind a bit. Um, I was quite adept at this point at breaking into houses. I'd learnt a lot of skills from a locksmith at um, um, bypassing door locks. Um, I was very knowledgeable about methods of door, car, house, and car security. Um, and the reason is because back then, if you broke, if you police used force entry to break into a property, you then had to wait with it until the owner came home, which could be many, many hours. I would rather break in without damage and then just lock it up. <clears throat> anyway, this particular story on a one morning, uh, the control room asked for any officer available to report a burglary, which is how I knew it wasn't targeted at me. So I volunteered. Um, went to report this burglary in this basement flat. And I thought, this isn't right. There's been the door, the doors and there's no damage to the lock. I knew that burglar this time, they used to just shoulder barge a door, usually to find quick sell stuff to fund drug habits. Um, <clears throat> so I was sort of a bit suspicious. I went in this flat, had been ransacked. TV and uh, video cabinet was empty. There was drawers tipped out. And there was a big pile of banknotes on top of some clothing, about £400. I thought, there's no big... A burglar couldn't... You couldn't miss that. So a house so, had been burgled, sorry. Yeah, flat, yeah. The yeah. basement had been burgled. Okay. It didn't add up. Yeah, so um, but anyway, I, I did what I was supposed to. I scooped up the money and bagged it. I called scenes of crime down to do fingerprints. I secured the place, which just meant dropping the yell latch and closing the door. Um, booked the property, the money into the safe at the police station, and then wrote my, wrote my report and left it at that and thought nothing more about it. And then checked a week later, and the money had been signed for by a senior officer from an unknown covert department at Scotland Yard. And then the penny dropped. This was um, an integrity test, um, which was was done from time to time to try and root out corrupt officers. They all set up this crime Um Ask for anybody to go and deal with this, knowing you know. And then if they're going afterwards and the money's gone, and they check the books and it's not been booked in, then you're bang to rights. You know, there's money gone missing from this crime scene. It's all the the audit trail is there, and you're in deep trouble. Um, I'll be honest, never crossed my mind to take even a penny of it because that that wasn't on my radar, never has been. Um, but it was it was it was crudely done, as in there was 
There was no forced entry. There was no way you could have, a burglar could have missed this pile of money. Why would you take a, a TV you're going to get 25 quid for when there's 400 pound in cash <laughs> laying on the floor? So that was, um, I forgot what the question was now. Was it? Think, <laughs> think like a criminal. Think like a criminal, yes. Try and, try and work out that one. A burglar hasn't come in here. A burglar would not have been able to use the quite skilled methods to bypass door locks in a basement flat that's out of view of the street. They just bash their way in, basically. What was your first encounter with a corrupt cop then? Um, a corrupt cop? Um, there was um, a... He wasn't a cop. He was a civil, member of civilian staff. And there was plenty of cops along the way. But this uh, the first encounter was a, a civilian member of staff who um, used to do the shift work running the front office. And one of his colleagues used to sort of have a laugh about him. She said, whenever I, I'm running the front office, there's always all these women phoning up for him by name, asking for him by name. And I think, yeah, she said, he just must be such a, such a gigolo. Player. This guy. Yeah, real player. Mm. Uh, no, he was part of an illegal immigrant smuggling ring. Oh, um, he was, he was His role of this gang was to find safe houses in London. And with unbelievably breathtaking arrogance, he'd given them the phone number of the police station to contact him. This would be for pre-mobile phones, obviously. Um, so the women all ringing up to speak to this guy um, to to sort out their accommodation, having come in in the back of lorries or whatever. Wow. Um, and he was, um, but he was he was under investigation at the time, and he was he was jailed and kicked out. That is brave to give the police station number. Unbelievable, yeah, yeah. Wow. Al- alcohol was a downfall of a lot of a lot of officers. You know, um, uh, a guy who I, um, I I turned up for a late shift. Walked into the locker room one day, and there's a police officer unconscious on the floor in full uniform with a, a bearded stranger standing over inside the police station in the locker room. Um, and I sort of, I'm, I'm almost straight into combat mode. You know, I thought, what's going on here? And this guy, this stranger, very quickly introduced himself. He's the, li- the licensee of a, a local pub, um, an Irish, um, a, a Dublin pub, um, and the officer was the local beat officer for that area. And uh, he said um, he, he came. He's been in. He's been in my pub drinking all morning in uniform. He said, and I shut up for for an hour at lunchtime or after lunch. He said, and I came out and he was lying in the gutter, unconscious, in full uniform. He said, so I slung him in my truck, drove him to the police station. I didn't know what to do with him. So I was like, does anybody know you're here? He said, oh yeah, his his sergeant knows. He's dealing with it. So I'm like, fine. I don't want to know anymore. And I left him to it. And this same guy. A few months later, he crashed into parked cars in his own car while he was drunk, and he was kicked out. Wow. Do you think that's a reaction to, like, self-medicating for the trauma that they mm-hmm. go through yeah. and see Absolutely. Things, yeah. dark things? Yeah, mm. I think so, yeah. Mm. Wow. So the next chapter, then, is real-life death? Yeah. Um, this is where I've, I've sort of condensed a lot of the more graphic uh, deaths into one chapter rather than two um they are i mean death is interspersed throughout the book because that's that was the nature of my career but um there was the the one we already talked about the guy who, who fell off his his roof mm. um um another one was um quite a bizarre 999 call where a lady phoned and said uh, my neighbor i can hear eastenders playing through the tv um this is the t- eastenders 
and Coronation Street were both on at 7.30 on different channels. And uh, she said she hates EastEnders. She never watches EastEnders. She always watches Coronation Street. She's a Coronation Street addict. I think something's happened to her. Um, and this is the most tenuous of emergencies, but the operator fair play to her. She said, right, okay, I'm going to get police to check it out. So they um, sent a call to me. It was in a tower block, Shepherd's Bush Green. So I went to this flat, and this lady told me the same story. And I thought, okay, it's worth investigating anyway. So I used my my array of tools to get an entry to this flat. And there was this poor lady. She was sat on the sofa, uh, head down on her chin. She was she's, um, well dead, you know, proper dead. And uh, um, EastEnders was on the TV. You know, with, um, I think it was a time when Den and Angie were having a big bust up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so there was no, it was just a, a natural causes, sudden death. There was no, no time forced entry. There was no, um, no injuries on her. So it was what it was, one of those sad things that happens. So I uh, contacted her son who lived on the other side of London. He was making his way up. Uh, and then all this start to finish had taken 20 minutes so far. And I thought it was 10 minutes of Coronation Street left. So, um, the sofa was about the size of the one that you two are sitting on. Um, so I switched the TV onto Coronation Street and I sat next to her for, oh, for 10 minutes and <laughs> watched Coronation Street. How long had she been dead for? Um, less than a day. Less than a day. Yeah, yeah. she was not. She was had a bit, had a bit of rigor mortis, but no decomposition. Um, and the lady's son turned up and I thought, I'm going to take a real risk here and tell him what I've done. I said, this is one one. I said, I've, I, I sat on the sofa for 10 minutes and watched the end of Coronation Street with your mum and he was just, just bursting into tears. Oh. It was like, that's the most... The, the most compassionate thing anybody could have done for my mum. So I'm like, well, wow. at least I could do. Wow. So these deaths you've mentioned then have been like natural causes yeah, or, or accidents and stuff. What about deaths? You show up and, you, and it's, you're suspicious? Um, yeah. Um, there's, obviously there's there's a, a fair selection of, um, anyone in London gets its, its fair share of murders and stuff. Sometimes they're not what they seem. There's one one murder in inverted commas, where um, Hammersmith Hospital A&E called us and said, we've had a lady brought in with a serious stab wound to her leg. She's severed the femoral artery, femoral mm. artery and she's she's passed away. She's only in her early 20s. So they gave us the address. We raced around to this address uh, on on a local estate. Um, I had, had the scenario running in my head that we're going to break into this place. We're going to find a, a jealous boyfriend, husband, whatever, disarm him, arrest him call down the murder squad and it's, that's how it's going to pan out uh, no that wasn't how it panned out at all we went to this address which was unoccupied appeared everything appeared normal until we went into the bedroom when there was um, lots of blood everywhere um, broken glass telephone hanging off the hook uh, there was makeup hairspray false nails all spread out um, and what actually solved the case was listening to the tape of a 999 call this woman had made. And basically, she'd been getting ready for a night out with her friends, tripped up and fallen face first into this mirror. And it had shattered. A piece of glass had gone into her leg. She'd managed to call 999 for an ambulance before she'd passed out through loss of blood. Um, And then subsequently, the post-mortem, which was done, recovered the piece of glass, which was over 30 centimetres long, and it ended up in her stomach. In through her leg through her pelvis up into her stomach. Mm. So everything's not as it seems. That was a, that was a bona fide murder that completely wasn't. No. Wow. That sounds like a rubbish night out. What about yes. one where there was a murder? Mm. Um, 
yeah, I'll have to. Uh, most of my most of my deaths were suicidal natural causes. Um, mm. um, there's there was one where I think it was a murder, and I still do, which was in Shepherd's Bush Market um, on one night shift. Um, it was a Sunday night, last of a seven nights. I've been walking in the rain for most for every night that week. I was looking forward to having some time off. Um, at the time. There was a high-profile murder inquiry running, a guy called Christoph Schliak, who was a German barrister who'd um, been found stabbed 22 times in his flat just opposite the police station. Um, a few weeks in, a few months in, progress was very slow. This was um, um, the Met, were throw- murder teams were throwing everything at this to try and solve it, getting nowhere. Um, so most officers were being seconded to this, so we just almost like had a skeleton staff doing the day-to-day stuff. So I was on my own foot patrol, Shepherd's Bush Market, four o'clock in the morning, and I saw a pool of blood with a drag mark leading away from it. So I followed the drag mark with my torch, and underneath a, a market stall was um, a body of a, of a vagrant, the back of his head all stove in, um, clearly dead. He was on his back. His eyes were wide open, had the makings of rigor mortis. So I called an ambulance, because we have to call an ambulance, because we're not allowed to assume somebody's dead. Um, called the CRD down to the scene, and they they um, sort of turned up a little bit disinterested. And I explained what I had, what I'd, you know, everything. I'd sealed off the market, blah, blah, blah. Handed it over to them, and then went home two hours later. Came back to work the following Thursday, four days later, to see what had, progress had been made, and it had been written off as an accidental death. Um, and then this, this, the detective said, he fell over, banged his head, and that's that. I said, yeah, his body had been moved, he'd been dragged. And he's like, but we're, we're really tied up with this Christoph Schliak murder, we've got no resources, Just that's just the way it is. So this guy, Michael Merriman was his name, I think he went off to a, a pauper's cremation, funded by the local authority, um, unmourned and apparently unmissed. How sad. Uh, so that was, um, yeah, that that um, that was what it was, sign of the times. But there was definitely something not right about that. Didn't add up. You've got the case of the fur cloths in mm. the book. Yeah, that was one of the most tragic things I ever dealt with, I think, in my 30 years. Um, that was um, a fairly standard neighbour call saying I'm worried about... You would get... Sorry, I'll start again. You get... Fairly standard calls from neighbours saying, I'm worried about the person, singular, who lives next door. I've not seen him for a long time. There's a lot of post building up. There's a funny smell. This podcast is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's is way more than a super sharp razor company. They're here to revamp your whole routine, from close shaves and flake-free hair, all the way to clear, healthy skin. Harry's helps guys feel great. For this sponsorship, Harry's is offering a free travel-sized shower gel with a trial set to you, the viewers, to give you a chance to try their other products as well as shave. Please make sure to support this podcast and give your own shower shave a go by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, to have your set delivered and start a shave plan. Your freebie will be added at checkout. 
That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting Harry's. Link is in the description box below this video. You know what sort of thing. This was the first time I'd heard somebody say, I'm really worried about the couple that lives next door. I've not seen either of them for several days. The post is building up. There's a funny smell, blah, blah, blah. So I went around there, had a look. Curtains are closed. Um, opened the letterbox and the smell of decomposition that came through the letterbox thought, okay, yeah, I know what's happening in here. So I opened the door with my trusty toolkit again, started searching the house, went into the front bedroom and found this couple locked in an embrace, rotting away, covered in maggots. Um, so quickly opened the window to ventilate the place. Um, just about to call for a coroner and I saw a little movement of a hand. And I thought, this is from the, lady, the lady's hand moved. And I thought, Christ, she's alive. And so I quickly called an ambulance on the radio, so I need an ambulance urgently to this address, and sort of leaned over, brushed all these maggots off her face. Oh. And she's and she's like, I, I, I couldn't leave him. And what happened was they'd been married for 60-odd years, gone to bed, he'd died in his sleep, she'd woke up in the morning, he was dead in bed next to her, and she'd um, just had a bit of a meltdown, a breakdown, and she'd gathered him up in her arms and held him for four days and nights unable to do anything else oh my while he just rotted away. If you died and, right now, um, yeah, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, right. so we got, oh. between myself and two paramedics, we, we managed to prise her away from the rain, remains of her husband to get her off to ambulance, off to hospital. Um, and she passed away the following day, unfortunately. No. Yeah, which was, the cause of death was severe dehydration. But oh. as I said in the book, I think it was a broken heart. Broken, broken heart, heart, they say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! So that was. Um, she spent her last days just watching, watching her husband, watching her husband of sixty odd years just rot. rot away. That is terrible, yeah. terrible. So the next chapter then is. Oh, one minute, I've got integrity. You're sprawling over your skinny bed while half watching EastEnders, and you thought about the horrific scene you'd witnessed in Jill's garden. That was the false teeth. Oh. So oh. That was the the um yeah. so the one that became the false teeth story. Yeah. That was the, yeah. the guy Norman falling off the roof. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> so integrity. Integrity. Yeah, that's um the the bit about the the burglary in the flat, the fake burglary. Oh, oh that's right. that one. That's there's that, that one. one. Yeah, there's, there's probably other stuff in there. The overlaps with think like a criminal. Yeah, We've done monkey business. We've done monkey yeah. business. Never start a fight. You can't possibly win. Yeah, that was sage advice given at training school during uh, self-defense classes. Um, never start a fight, you can't possibly win, uh, which um, served me well th most of the time when I paid attention to it. The time when it came back, well, it didn't come back to bite me, but when I should have used it was when was the machete incident. Um, I yeah, did the wrong thing there, should have, should have backed off. Um, there's there's similar sort of situations further down the book where I'm I'm following armed criminals when I shouldn't, um, and I think afterwards, what the hell was I doing? You know. Yes. Do you want to give us one of those stories now? <laughs> when following armed criminals, you shouldn't. Sure. Yeah. The, um, it starts off with um, until about 1994, um, police officers didn't routinely wear bulletproof vests, um, and then in '94. I was called in to see the, the borough commander at Hammersley Police Station. Always when you get that message, you wonder what you've done wrong. 
Um, and he said, um, the Mets have been, have decided to issue every officer with, with personal issue body armor. We've been asked to supply across the Met 50 officers of unusual shapes and sizes for the trial. So I thought of you. I'm like, oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, I know I'm, I know I'm built like a racing snake, but you know, <laughs> um, so I took part in the trial over 10 weeks. We were given 10 sets of body armor. We had to write a route to wear, um, operationally. Um, some of them were absolutely ludicrous. Some of them were over two inches thick. Um, there was one where I could barely drive a police car because my arms were being forced so far apart. Um, so in the 10 weeks, we all, we submitted a report and the end result of the product, which was called the Met Vest, was, in my opinion, light years ahead of anything we tested. It was very wearable, uh, easy to keep clean. I'm in a minority on this. I, I used to suffer from bad backs and they, the Met Vest cured it by being like a brace for me. Um, so I wore it religiously every day on duty. Um, as the um, part of the input, we had an input from firearms department who was saying that um, you know bullet travels at 1,200 feet per second. I know that a lot of officers keep body armor in the boot of the car and they put it on when there's a necessity. Can you really be faster than 1,200 feet per second? Um, and also he said, be realistic about its um, capabilities. Um, imagine if you... Imagine, if you will, um, a six-inch thick block of wood like a railway sleeper and a six-inch nail and a sledgehammer. And I give you one blow to get that nail through the wood. Imagine how hard that blow would have to be. Now imagine that same blow hitting you in the chest, body armor or not. That's the force of a shotgun blast. Uh, that would break all your ribs. You'd probably die from internal bleeding. All the, me- all the metalists will do is stop projectiles going into your body. So don't think of it as some kind of Superman force field. It's not. So it's quite a sobering lesson, the one that I kept up here all the time. And I wore it, I say, religiously every day on duty throughout my career, except one. And on this particular day, I was not supposed to be on duty. I was supposed to be on the day off, but I got called to court in Harrow, um, which I thought, great, because you get, back then you get called to court, even if you're only there five minutes, you get six hours pay at double time. So it's, uh, it's a good earner. So I went to court. I was there about an hour. And then I went back to the into the control room at Harrow Police Station just to sign the overtime state, uh, at which point the phones and the radio just erupted with emergencies of a, a double shooting in um, somewhere else on the ground, Edgeware or Wheelstone or somewhere. Um, and everybody's dispatched this scene of somebody being shot and possibly killed, somebody else had been seriously wounded, and it was all mayhem, as it often is when there's an emergency. So I'm still with the... Um, Double time overtime meter clicking in my head. Said to inspector, "Oh, do you want me to stay on?" You know, um, he said, "Yeah, get up to the scene." So I went to the scene, um, did a bit of crowd control, blah blah blah. Wearing my court uniform, I should say, tunic, um, whistle chain, no mo- no body armor. Um, and then I wasn't needed at the scene, so I said to the inspector, "You know, do you want me to do you want me to stay on rest of the shift, help out a bit?" And he's like, "Yeah, there's a backlog of calls." So I took a police car out and started dealing with burglaries and shoplifters and run-of-the-mill stuff. And six hours later, my heart starts thumping in my chest and I called the control room and said, can you repeat the registration number of that car involved in the double shooting? And they told me what it was. And I'm like, okay, I'm sat behind it in um, East Coat Lane, heading towards um, Uxbridge. Can you get me armed response? And so they start getting armed response coming towards me, which comes from central London. So there's a bit of travelling time. 
So I'm in a marked police car. There's no way they could have not seen me in the mirror. Following this Ford Focus, I think it was. You can see the silhouettes. There's three people in it. Um, and I'm following this car, thinking, I have a two-year-old son at home. What the hell am I doing? Um, and I, I kept following. And all I had this mental picture of, well, as my, was of my um, Met vest, body armor, hanging up at home in the laundry where I'd just take it home to wash because I'm a few days off. Um, and I followed this car for a couple of miles, and every time we stopped, I'm thinking I should really take, I should really break off from here. Um, but I didn't. I, I, I stuck with it, and then after about a couple of miles, um, this two armed response car screamed past me and blocked it in and dragged them out at gunpoint. Two two men and a woman were in the car, um, cuffed them up, and that was and it was they searched the car. They recovered this sawn off shotgun from the car. Um, and that was all that. And I, I went home and ended the shift. And I thought, I've made about 300 quid in overtime today. Was it worth it? No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that was um, a, a starting a fight. I couldn't possibly win, basically. I should. Um, it, was, it, was good, it was a good result, but it definitely, definitely wasn't worth the risks. No. Not at all. No. So you've got a, well, I would say, funny story with, to do with Paul Daniels. Yeah, um, this was um, I was in my first year of service, and I was on a, a foot patrol um, in Shepherd's Bush. Obviously, has Wood Lane, which is has the BBC TV centre and blah blah. Um, and the call was about um, quite late into the evenings, uh, either a, either end of a late shift or start of a night shift. Um, a call was received from a motorist from a Mister Daniels who's locked his keys in his car <laughs> at the BBC TV center. I didn't put two and two together, but the control room news knew that I carry various gadgets for breaking into cars and houses. So they sent me. So I um, went to the BBC car park in Wood Lane, and there was Paul Daniels, the magician, with um, with his wife and a few friends. Mm. Um, and I, th- I said, "This this is a wind up. You, Britain's most famous magician, can't magic your keys out your car." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like. I really can't. So um, I had to sort of tinker away with the with the car. Um, it was a nice shiny new Volkswagen, I think, as I recall. Um, after about ten minutes, I managed to get the door open, and, and those keys were on the passenger seat where they'd fallen out of his pocket or something. Um, and uh, he was like really very very polite and gracious about it. And he said, "How do you do that?" So I just I couldn't resist the temptation. I said, "Well, that's magic, you know." And <laughs> and, um, and that that was that was that. And um, they went their merry way and. I got to write about it 30 years later. He didn't have it on his show the next week. <laughs> I, t- I never used to watch him, to be honest with you. <laughs> same, yeah. same, same. <laughs> Good cops, bad cops, and fingertip searches. What is a fingertip right, the, search? Um, I can imagine what it is. This but... one, this story has been heavily anonymised um, because of there's various, well, lots of various legal reasons to do that. Um, but this was about um, a, a large fight on the White City estate, which was a regular occurrence. Gangs fighting off, you know, fighting, fighting each other for turf control, etc. Um, I wasn't involved in it. I was dealing with a, uh, a burglary, I think, somewhere else. And uh, But what happened, these two gangs had been fighting and this um, this guy had lost, um, lost a body part, which I've called a finger in there, but that's for um, legal reasons. And he was lying in the other way, clutching his hand, clutching the, the blood spurting out of this stump. Uh, he was a very, very well-known gangster. He had lots of convictions, including attempted murder. He tried to shoot previous gang members. He had other gang, rival gang members, sorry. He had uh, convictions for 
assaulting police officers. Nasty piece of work. He was taken to hospital um, where the um, doctor said, if we can find the finger within the hour, um, we can reattach it. So the inspector in charge, aware of possible community tensions and um, a big criticism if we didn't deal with this, uh, rounded up every available officer, including me, to go and do a fingertip search of the streets to try and find this severed finger. And um, after about an hour, um, we couldn't find it. It was um, it, this was there was there was rats around, there was foxes around, there was stray cats. There was anything could have taken this finger. So that was that. Um, it was never recovered. And it was only um, many, many years later when I was talking to somebody else who was involved in the search um, and this story came up. And uh, I said, yeah, it's, uh, I wonder what happened to it. And this guy looked at me. He was a dog handler. He said, he said, my dog found it within 30 seconds. He said, I made sure it went straight down the nearest drain. There was no, no way he was getting it back, not with his rap sheet. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> you, can, you can keep that one. <laughs> so next chapter we have is dead endings yeah um you have to remind what the chapter's about come <laughs> up the, the titles were the titles were created by the ghostwriter and I've, um the market gloomy and deserted at 4am that's that's michael merriman yeah that's the the body ah, that, okay. head injury and then we are on to oh quite a long chapter good old bob yeah, um, Bob Bob Daniels was um, so my my mentor. My early years in the police, he was. Um, I say he joined the force two years before I was born. Um, he was very very enthusiastic about frontline policing, even though he had well over twenty years service, and he was a, a, a extremely good um, advanced driver. Um, and I used to um, we, we worked quite well as a team. I think I was in my twenties, he was in his forties. We would chase cars. Uh, which was his job, and the cars would crash, and the driver would run away, and which was my job. I would chase after them. Um, so um, one um, one crash we got chase we got involved in. Sorry, we're chasing a stolen Ford Escort one night around Shepherd's Bush, um, and he was he was acing the driving, you know, and I was you know I was in the passenger seat, like a coiled spring, ready to jump out and chase this uh, joyrider on foot. Eventually, the car did crash. The joyrider jumped out and uh, he jumped over some spike railings into um, the upper Latimer playing fields, school playing fields. Um, uh, so Bob shouts, go get him, Matt, which was, he's done his job. He's driven, he's, he's chased the car that it crashed. So I went racing after this guy. I jumped over the spike railings, uh, totally. He was over, the, the suspect, the joyrider, he was over it like an Olympic hurdler. Uh, I was much less elegant and I caught my foot on the spike railing, which ripped the shoe straight off my foot. Um, I hit the ground, uh, dropped my torch, smashed the bulb, and this particular torch called a maglite carries a spare bulb in the battery compartment, so I managed to get rid of the broken glass, get rid of the broken bulb, change the bulb, and put it back together, and turn the torch back on, all while sprinting across the playing fields with one shoe off. Um, eventually caught this guy, um, far side of the playing fields, um, managed to arrest him, and assist him back over the railings to where Bob was waiting to handcuff him. And then well, I'd also managed to lose my handcuffs, my notebook, my radio, everything had gone flying off and searched the playing fields. Couldn't find anything except my shoe. The shoe was still on top of the railings with a spike straight through the sole and straight through the, the laces. Um, barely a mark on my foot. I don't know how I got away with it. Um, but the next day... Um, 
everything that I'd lost had been handed in to the police station. The school staff or the school pupils had found police radio, police notebook, handcuffs, everything on the plane field and handed them all back in. So apart from um, making a right mess of the climbing over the railings and wrecking a pair of shoes, I kind of got away unscathed and we, we caught a joyrider. Um, and then there's other scrapes where um, involving Bob and another car chase where a car was dumped on the White City estate or was it no the Becklow Gardens estate with two joyriders in it they both ran in different directions so we both chased after one each I caught mine quite quickly uh, Bob was gone so I handcuffed this prisoner brought him back to the police car put him in the back seat and sat in next to him so I sat in the back of the police car the blue lights are still on the engine's still running the crashed joyriders in front of us and Bob is nowhere to be seen. So I sat there waiting. And then a local sort of ne'er-do-well starts walking up to the police car, having a look around. I'm still sat in the back with this prisoner in handcuffs. And then this, uh, this other youth, he jumps into the front of the police car and sticks the gear selector into reverse, trying to steal the police car. What? Completely oblivious to the fact there's a policeman and a prisoner in the back seat. <sighs> so I um, I lashed out with my foot, kicked the part... the gear selector back into park so it jolts us all backwards as the wheels lock this guy shouted oh fuck <laughs> jumped out tried to run away but he was going nowhere I was on him and um, <laughs> threw him in the back seat un- un- uncuffed the prisoner who was laughing his head off <laughs> and cuffed the two of them together and that was so one arrested for stealing a car one arrested for stealing a police car um, and then Bob came back empty handed out of breath having lost the driver and he looked, he saw two arrests in the back scene. He's like, yes. I'm like, no. <laughs> Take the keys with you next time, will you? Because he, th- he thought I'd caught them both, you know. What would possess one to steal a police car? It's like a no-win situation, yeah. isn't it? Never going to end well, is it, really? No. He'd, seen, he'd seen this, he'd not he'd, you know, exercised due diligence. He'd seen this police car with the blue light on, the engine running, no policeman anywhere nearby. I mean, it was night time. He'd not, think, not thought to look in the back seat. Um, thought he'd try his luck. So, so by this point in your story, then, you'd exercise CPR on a few people. What were the yeah. CPR situations? Um, none of them worked, oh, I should say. Um, the um, one that springs to mind was um, in <clears throat> King Street in Hammersmith. I don't know how chronologically this works. Um, but this was, uh, I was responding to a pub fight. Uh, going down King Street... It was a, I think it was a Friday rush hour. It's busy. The blue lights and sirens are on, carving through the traffic. Um, King, the pub fight was in Chiswick High Road, which is a continuation of King Street. So I'm going down down King Street, um, screaming past the news agents. Where, sorry, an off license. Where unbeknown to me, there was an armed robbery in progress. Didn't know about it because we hadn't had a call. Got a few hundred meters further on, and the Scotland Yard called me up, say, diverting you back to King Street. There's been an armed robbery and a, and a shooting. So I did a screaming U-turn back up King Street and we were on scene in a minute, two minutes. Um, and this guy um, lying on the floor, this guy called Nath Bander, um, clutching stomach. And he'd been shot point blank range with a sawn off shotgun. Um, so I did CPR on him. I was doing chest compressions while my colleague uh, was doing mouth to mouth. I'm calling for an ambulance. There's, the, the shopkeeper is panicking. And he's saying this guy just heard the sirens and pulled the trigger. Um, turns out he'd heard me screaming past thinking I was coming for him he panicked and pulled the trigger I wasn't coming for him I was going to a different call um, so we did CPR on this guy and then the paramedics turned up and took over then they put him in the ambulance and uh, 
we uh, escorted them to Charing Cross Hospital, but the guy was was dead, unfortunately. He'd, um, as the um, trauma consultant said, he had about twenty pellets gone into his into him. Uh, blood was lost very quickly. Um, it turns out the uh, guy committing the robbery was a sixteen-year-old crack addict who uh, demanded money. Uh, all this, um, all all he got from the robbery was twenty-six pence. That was the proceeds. He was uh, caught, and he, he was caught after his 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 dad made him give himself up. His dad was an actor from the mill. Um, he gave himself up uh, when he was interviewed. He said, "You know, he heard my sirens, thought I was coming for him." Uh, he got twelve years in jail, reduced to nine for good behaviour, I think. Um, and the guy um, Nath Bander was a is a, a barrister's clerk, just popped into the off license for a few bits and bobs, ended up um, getting shot dead. What a waste of a life. Mm. So that was um, a failed, a failed CPR attempt. Um, another one, which was uh, again, it's I'm not sure where it sits chronologically, but when I was doing my first tour of duty with a um, um, special constable who I've called Hazel, it was her first tour of duty, and I thought, oh, God, I don't want to take a special out there. Um, specials are there's three types of special constables. You know, special constables they're volunteers. They don't get paid, they get um, training, they get a uniform and radio and everything, and they work generally 16 to 20 hours a month volunteering. They get full police powers, and for all intents and purposes, they are fully warranted police officers. But they fall into three categories. There's those who are um, a joy to work with because they they want to join the regulars. They, this is their, they're really enthusiastic and driven. Fortunately, Hazel was in that category. Um, second category are those who tend to be a bit older, who just want to... Um, give something back to the community on a voluntary basis. And the third category, sadly, are those who are who are, who are bullies and they think, oh, I can, I can get paid to throw my weight around in pub fights, you know, or not get paid, but have legal authority to do it. So um, uh, Hazel's very first tour of duty, uh, we set off from Harrow and, uh, just after two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and I was trying to sort of get a measure for what kind of day am I going to have I mean, it's quite clear quite early on we were going to have a good day. She was she was very enthusiastic, very personable. Um, so we're chatting away, and she suddenly thrust her hand across my face, said, "Look, there's a body," pointing to the pavement. So, and there was this lady face down on the pavement with a crowd gathering around her. So I pulled over, and this um, this lady who was in her eighties, she'd as it happened, she'd had a massive heart attack on her feet, and had face planted the pavement, her nose flattened into her face. Um, so yeah, we, again, we tried CPR on her. Well, I tried CPR on my own on her because Hazel wasn't um, first aid trained, so she couldn't help me. Um, but that was another one. Yeah, it's, it was um, it, that came down to public perception. There was people standing around wa- watching, and I absolutely knew this woman was dead beyond saving. But you can't be seen to do that. You have to be seen to do CPR um, until the ambulance turns up, and they, then it's over to them. Mm. Wow, very sad. So maybe. A nice lighter one now. Um, Please, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a funny story about a stripper, or you being a stripper. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was always wanted to drive police cars. I was desperate to drive police cars, but my first two and a half years, I wasn't allowed to. I was um, to walk a beat. But I also really wanted to get stuck into emergencies. I liked the adrenaline, the big emergencies. Um, and often I would hear uh, emergency calls come out, but they were a few miles away. I thought I want to get stuck into that, but even if I was to jog there, it'd still be, you know, a, a, the the dust would have settled. It might be too late. 
So I thought, well, I'll start commandeering lifts, members of the public. You know, what's the worst that can happen? They can always say no. So I started, you know, if an emergency call came out, I'd just jump in the road with my torch or, if necessary, flag a car down. And normally these people would be horrified, like, what have I done? And when I say absolutely nothing, I just wonder if you'd give me a lift. They're delighted, usually. I think most people have this public-spirited sense. And usually, and it worked really well. I got, um, you know, I, I would... Um, ask for a lift then they say absolutely get in you know and they take more wanted to go and one of the first times i did this was on a, a friday or a saturday night and the first car that came along was a stretch limo flagged it down and said to the driver there's i, I need to get to um a, a road traffic accident it's about a mile away any chance of a lift and this driver's like oh yeah plenty of room in the back i i, I fell for it didn't i you know this, this limo's got blacked out windows i knew i got to deal what's going on so i opened the back door uh, there was a hen party inside, so um, I thought, okay, I'll wait for the next car to come along. But no, the the brighter bee was having on of it. She grabbed hold of me, pulled me into this limo, and um, the door shut, and the driver drove off to where I'd asked him to go. And then five minute drive of um, some things like you know, show us your truncheon, and you know. And- <laughs> I I was, um, I think I I was 22 years old at the time, you know, and I was, you know, this, you know, any other circumstance, you know, I'd give me right arm for this, you know, but. um, Did you have a truncheon with you? I did, yeah, and I did show it them, yeah. (laughs) Did you have Um, to dance for them? Fortunately not, (laughs) but um, yeah, we 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 got to the um, we got to the scene of this this crash, and before I could get out the limo, some of the hens had to get out first, so. These hens tumble out. They're all tipsy on um, Prosecco and everything. And I got out and so I had to, you know, straighten up my tunic and my tie and put my helmet back on and everything. And these two drivers involved in this fairly minor crash, which stood there looking at me. And I had to tell them, I'm not the hen party stripper. Okay, I'm a police officer. I think I had to show my warrant card. And um, <laughs> it, it was they were they were very. Good humoured about it, fortunately, but starting from a position of very low credibility and authority, I had to really build myself back up to deal with this crash. Um, and then the, the next time I tried um, to um, flag a lift, I thought, I'm not picking a limo. So I picked, um, uh, I think it was a Ford Fiesta or a Mini. And uh, the lady driving it was in her in her mid-80s, and she was absolutely terrified. What have I done? I'm just like... Nothing at all. So there's been a there's a, a bit of a disturbance going on at this pub on Shepherd's Bush Green. I'm a bit of a way away. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving me a lift a bit closer. And she's like, "Oh, of course, officer. You know, you know, whatever I can do to help." So um, I got in the car. I reached for my seatbelt, and I was suddenly flattened against the seat as she wheel spun away. <laughs> um, the pub was a mile away, and she did it in less than a minute in central <laughs> London. And she went through three red lights, and I'm like. On the dashboard, and she's like, "I've always wanted to do this." <laughs> screeched, screeched to a halt, a halt at this uh, pub fight, um, and I got out. There was other police cars. There was a riot van there, and there was lots of blue lights. Uh, probably about ten police cars, police vehicles at least went into this pub, which was it, it was dealt with fairly quickly, as they often are. Three or four people got arrested for being drunk and disorderly. The pub was dispersed. The police vehicles drifted away. I came out of the pub and she was still sat there in the mini. Where next? <laughs> Thank you very much for your public spirited service, but you can continue the rest of your evening. That'll teach you to hitchhike. It will, yeah. <laughs> what happened when the cyclist undertook the loaded lorry? 
yeah, that was that was pretty tragic as well. That was um, a nice bright uh, weekday morning. Um, I was um, Shepherd's Wish Green, which is uh, th- this happened near the TV centre in Wood Lane, BBC TV centre. I was driving around Shepherd's Wish Green, which is about a mile away, and a uh, call came into um, a road traffic collision between a, a lorry, a skip lorry, and a cyclist. Um, it's become increasingly common in London. Uh, a large vehicle turning left and a cyclist going up the inside. It's, it's, I've been to more of those now than I care to remember. Mm. Um, so I turned up, I was first, first on the scene because I was close by. And the lorry's still at a 45 degree angle in the junk, into the junction, uh, not completed its turn. And behind the lorry, there was tie marks, skid marks, alternating rubber and what was quite clearly human flesh. Here's a message from our sponsor. So, Jen, have you ever like signed up for a gym or something or other, and then they just keep taking this money out of your bank? Yes, it's really, really frustrating. Um, you know, if you want to cancel, you want to cancel straight away. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's something that drives me mad. Absolutely mental. Of course, it's a business scam out to get you. <laughs> Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take care of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions. That you don't need, want or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Which is approximately 500 quid. (laughs) Because these damn companies make it hard to cancel your subscriptions, Truebill makes it incredibly easy to cancel. Just link your accounts and Truebill will make it easy to cancel your subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there for when you want to cancel any unwanted subscriptions. So you don't have to. Stay on top of your spending with Truebill. Get an effortless breakdown of your finances to see where your money is going and how to improve. Truebill will notify you of important events that need your attention so you're never caught off guard again. Like Jennifer B, he says, With your help, our family has saved $587 this year on unnecessary subscriptions. I really didn't understand how Truebill could help me until we decided to save for a very large home purchase. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. So go right now to truebill.com forward slash Sean. It could save you thousands per year. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. So... I've called for more. I need more units. I need traffic patrol. I need uh, fire brigade for screens. I need this, 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 this. It's what I call conflicting priorities because you have a list of tasks. They all need to be done first, and it's an impossible situation, you know. So you just do your best. But the first, the overriding priority is to save a life if you can. Didn't think that was quite um, likely from what I could see from the back of the lorry. So I went around the side and looked underneath, and there was this scene from a horror movie. There's a cyclist only in his 20s, face down on the road under the lorry with no 
pelvis, no legs, nothing. Just gone oh. from the waist down. So just from about the belt, below the belt, there was nothing. It was just shredded. Oh. He'd been the, the marks, the tire marks would indicate he'd been round the axle at least four times. Oh, oh. my God. So, so I, I'm under the lorry, um, which doesn't have much headroom, obviously, crawling around by the cyclist looking to hopefully find a wallet or some ID or something. And then he lifts his head up. No! Yeah. Jesus and I, Christ. as he lifts his head up, I smack my head on the underside of the lorry because I was so startled. Um, and this, he looked at me and he said, my arm's hurting. Oh Can you move my, my arm? And his left arm, I think, had a, a, a graze down it where he hit the tarmac. And it was touching the tarmac. So I said, I was completely in shock. I said, okay, so I'm repositioned his left arm. So um, it wasn't, the graze wasn't touching the tarmac. And I said, is that better? And he said, yes, thanks. And then <laughs> died. Oh, my God. That. Jesus Christ. And I was stared in the lorry for a few minutes thinking, what the hell just happened? I've just been spoken to by a body. <laughs> and then I snapped back into work mode and got out from the lorry and started doing the rest of the stuff I needed to do. Um, but the paramedic told me afterwards, he said, it's it's not that uncommon with a massive trauma if the, the brain is still emptying out almost. That this guy would possibly have grazed his arm before he did anything else. Oh. And, his, and his arm was hurting as he came off the bike. So um, that's one of the few times when I've got, got, gone home thinking... Switch off, switch off, switch off. Yeah. How do you even continue your day after seeing something like that, man? The way that we normally do. I went back to the station, I changed my shirt, my trousers, because they were blood-soaked, put on a new uniform, and went out dealt with more calls, uh, so, which, which is what, what cops do on, yeah. the, on a daily basis. Oh, my God. What happened when Tracy reported Rick missing to police when he'd failed up to short work? Yeah, this this um, emphasised my limitations with dealing with, with families. Um the uh, Tracy and Rick were a couple lived in Goldhawk Road in Shepherd's Bush. They'd had a he had um, some mental health and depression uh, and anxiety problems, and he disappeared. And she was understandably worried about him. So after about twenty four hours, she'd reported him missing. Um, some inquiries had been made, and no, to no avail. He'd not been found. Uh, then a couple of days later. The Met get a phone call from Bournemouth police saying, "We think we found your missing person. He's he's in a hotel room in Bournemouth. He's he's hung himself." Oh. Um. So they identified him. He's he basically taken himself down to Dorset to Bournemouth and and taken his own life. So this got sent back to us, and I was sent to to the flat in Shepherd's Bush to break the news to the uh, to the girlfriend. Um, and I said, you know. Give me ten dead bodies over one death message any day, you know, because I'm I, 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 I'm not that good at dealing with families, you know. I sometimes think I have, don't have the patience for it, but so I went to um, break the news to to Tracy, and she opened the doors as these people often do when they open the door to police officers, and they know. Mm. So she invited me in, and you know, I did the usual. Would you like to sit down? Which never works. They say no, just tell me. Um, and she said, "It's Rick. He's dead, isn't it?" Isn't he? And I said, I'm afraid so. Yes, he's um, he's been found in a in a hotel room in in Bournemouth, and he's he appears to have hung himself. And for the briefest of time, she burst into tears, and then was calm and composed again. 
and then turned it back on me. She said, I'm, I'm so sorry for you having to come and tell me this, officer. It must be terrible for you. Can I get you a cup of tea? And I'm like, well, 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 I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, and she was, um, there's various ways, I'm told, various ways that, that grief manifests itself. Um, and this was just indicative of her way of dealing with it. Shock. To, um, shock and to think about other people and not her own feelings. She think, like, you, you've had to come and tell me this. This is not fair that you should have to break this news to me with all it puts on you, you know. So can I look after you? Can I get you a cup of tea? Can I? And this was a very, um, surreal situation for me. So I eventually I had a cup of tea with her and, we, um, I think she gave me some counseling <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And yeah, it's bizarre. And, um, then I, I did the usual, is there anybody I can call on your behalf, et cetera, make sure she's okay. Then I left thinking, again, thinking what just happened there? I've just been looked after by somebody I'm supposed to be looking after. It was very strange. It's the, there's, there's many ways, um, um, the, the, this grief manifests itself. And because historically the police were terrible dealing with families, there was a, um, a, uh, they started doing proper family liaison training and having family liaison officers who were, properly trained in how to handle families and how to uh, be the link between the investigation or the coroner's court and the family. Um, I didn't do family liaison training, but I did the family liaison awareness training, which everybody had to do just to give us a, it's a day's course, just to show us what they do. And right from the start, you could see the need for it because the example that was given as to why do we need better um, inter- inter- interactions with families was a case in London where a teenage girl was stabbed in the street, staggered to her own front door before she collapsed. Her mum came out um, and cradled her in her arms as she died. Police were called. She got mum on the doorstep with blood everywhere and a dead daughter in her arms. And the first thing the police officer said to her was, what the hell are you doing? You're destroying the forensics. Get away from her. Oh. That's why we need the family liaison training. Oh my god! Oh wow! It, it all improved from there. Yeah. So we got another on another lighter note. Yeah, I'm hoping. Um, There's not many of those. Another limo <clears throat> story with Santa. Santa, yes, Santa. That's great. That was two limo stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to keep bringing it back to the limo <laughs> <laughs> This this, <laughs> this was Christmas Eve, 1997. I think. Well, actually, Christmas Day because it was after midnight. Uh, I was on a night shift in Harrow, um, just patrolling with um, a guy called Pete, who was a very, very enthusiastic young probationer. Um, he, this is a days before um, ANPR, automatic number plate reading cameras, when we had to manually have lists of number plates to look out for. Um, and he would do this diligently. Start of every shift, he'd check the crime computers, see what stolen cars, disqualified drivers, drug runners were around. Excuse me. Um, and he had this list on the dashboard. So we're going down this uh, fairly rural road in Harrow called um, Old Reading. And a limo, a stretch limo, goes past us the other way with um, a guy dressed as Santa Claus driving it. And I sort of pointed, oh, look at that, there goes Santa. Must have, his sleigh must be in for a service or something. <laughs> and Pete sort of banged the dashboard said, it's stolen. That, lim- that limo's on the, nist- on the list, it's stolen. <laughs> so I did a U-turn and went... Screaming after Santa, uh, put the blue lights on, uh, and he went for it. This limo, still limo, went for it. He, he shot off, and he led us on a merry chase around um, Harrow and Bushy, Watford, Oxy, all points in between. Um, wrong side of the road, through red lights. Um, well, I'm um, 
we're in a three liter Amiga. He's in a stretch limo. He's never going to get away from us. The, the power difference is 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 on definitely on our side. Uh, and um, eventually, he went barreling into a roundabout too fast, skidded off the road um, into some trees and some bushes. So I came to a halt. Um, Pete was out the door like a whippet, flung open the driver's door of the limo, about to grab Santa, drag him out. But Santa got the engine started again and started to drive off with Pete hanging on the door. <gasps> so I've there have been st- police officers have been killed in these circumstances hanging on to speeding cars. So I, I thought I knew what I was about to do, but I which was was illegal, but I couldn't stop myself, um, and I rammed it. Which you you are actually allowed to do now. It's called tactical contact, but it's taken a long time for those rules to change. Anyway, back then you weren't allowed to do it. So I barreled this Amiga straight into the side of the uh, limo, pushed it back off the road into a lamppost. Driver stalled again. Pete dragged Santa out, handcuffed him. Job done, uh, and that was that. So. So we're left now the dust is settling. I'm looking, I've got my police car embedded inside of a limo. We've got Santa in handcuffs and it's Christmas Day. <laughs> and there's so many stories spring to mind about disappointed kids not getting their presents and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Santa was carted off to the cells. Um, and then the following day, Boxing Day, he was taken to before the magistrates, still dressed as Santa Claus, and then remanded in custody to Wormwood Scrubs Prison, still dressed as Santa Claus. Um and it's, I, I'd, I'd just love to be in a fly on the wall when he turned up at prison. Merry Christmas. And, 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 and Merry Christmas, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that was, it turned out he was interviewed. He, he said he'd, um, he, he's a well-known prolific car thief and he'd had this idea that uh, he broke into a showroom of, of um, prestige prestige cars, broke into the office, stole the keys to this limo and he'd been driving around uh, London all Christmas Eve touting as a as a minicab, a novelty <laughs> minicab. Um, and in no more than three or four hours, he'd made 400 quid. Um, until we put a stop to it so it obviously it had been working you know it had been working for him Um, but um, so that was um, yeah that that was Christmas 1997 which was hugely entertaining admiral elements of creativity in that yeah (laughs) yeah you've got to admire his his creativity and and if if we hadn't caught him um, he'd have made a thousand yeah yeah uh, and uh, yeah, you got to admire the creativity. And he was no trouble, you know. He was a, he was a, he'd been through the mill so many times. He knew the score. He's quite happy to be arrested, and he didn't put up a fight. He spoiled his Christmas. Spoiled his Christmas, yeah. yeah. But but made mine. <laughs> so in nineteen ninety two, you got offered a place on the advanced driving course. Yes, that was my um, my utopia. That's what I everything had been for. I'd been serving about six years at this point, and I just wanted to drive the fast cars. Um. So, before you get there, you have to be uh, a basic driver, which is uh, untested. You basically have a, an assessment round the block. Then you can do your standard driving course, which entitles you to drive uh, Astras and station van. You can't. You can respond to emergency calls, but you can't chase. And then, provided you pass those courses, you have a good driving record, good performance record. You can go for the advanced driving course, which was six weeks at Hendon. Uh, this is then, it's all changed now, but six weeks of um, driving high-performance cars. So Vauxhall Omegas, um, Vauxhall Senators, um, Rover 827s, um, at stupid speeds around the country, training in um, fast response and vehicle pursuit. Um, and I got offered the place on the course, which was the like gold dust. Each police station would only get one or two places per year. So... Um, I was you know, thrilled and honoured that it was my turn. Um, 
but it didn't happen as it should. The the course was supposed to be in May, and about a couple of months before the course, I made one absent-minded mistake that would pretty much ruin my life for the next year, which I forgot to take my packed lunch to work. And simple as that, I was late shift, made my packed lunch, left it on the kitchen worktop and went to work without it. The most innocuous, innocent mistake you can make. Uh, when it came to break time, about six o'clock that evening, went to get my packed lunch, nothing there. My colleague was going to a um, a very well-known burger chain for his meal. I said, right, I'll join you. So I had a chicken burger and chips from this burger chain. And that was that. And then six hours later, woke up at home in absolute agony with stabbing pains in my stomach. Um, to cut a long story short, I called my GP out of hours number. Uh, an on-call overnight doctor came. I'd look at me. He said, you need to go to hospital now. Got me to hospital. I spent two weeks in isolation at Norfolk Park Hospital with severe salmonella poisoning. Uh, lost about about half my body weight. Um, and then took... Um, it took 18 months to get all the body weight back, but it took me four months to recover fully oh. from that. And during which my inspector phoned me and said, I'm taking you off the course. You're not in a fit state to do six weeks of high-speed driving around the country. And I tried to plead with him that I can make it, even though I knew I couldn't. And he said, no, my mind's made up. I'm taking you off the course, but I'll get you on the next one. And I said, that's, that's bullshit. You won't. There's, these courses are so rare. He was like, Matt, trust me, I know people. I will get you on the next course. So that was that. And he did. So um, instead of doing the course in May, I did it in August, I think, by which time I was nearly fully recovered, but not quite. So, and that was six weeks of thrashing fast cars around the country, um, doing mock pursuits and emergency calls. Um, and absolutely loved it with a few hair-raising moments like... Um, one particularly torrential rain day. I'm on the M1 in a Vauxhall Senator doing 110 miles an hour with the instructor, a very grumpy sergeant, sat next to me and two other students in the back seat. And I started to aquaplane. Now, with 110 miles an hour, and you're suddenly going sideways instead of forwards because you've got a wedge of water under the tyres. So I instantly dropped the speed, and the instructor's like, what are you doing? I'm like, um, I'm aquaplaning. And he's like, all right, okay. Waited five, ten seconds. Have you got the grip back yet? I'm like, yeah, I think so. I think we're good. He's like, well, what the fuck are you waiting for? Get that speed back up. <laughs> so, and off we went again, 110 in the in the torrential rain. Um, but apart from that, and um, the um, the only other sort of mishap was um, when we were having an end of day debrief, and um, he was going through my drives, and he said, we went through Danbury, and you stopped at a, a Ford, you know, like a stream across the road, you know. He said, how deep was the water? I'm like, it's quite shallow, six inches deep. He said, not even that, four inches. I'm like, okay, so your point is? He said, so why did you stop at the edge and look both ways? What do you expect, a toy canoe? He said, I just, it just felt like it was a road, like it was a junction. He said, you lost vital seconds on the emergency call. I'm like, and everybody else is laughing in the classroom, you know, this is the debrief, and I thought, yeah, okay, fair point. But you know, it, it just felt like I'd come to a junction. And so what I should have done was not plow through it, but didn't you no need to stop, you know, just go just slow down. But apart from that, um I managed very you know, few well, no major mishaps, a few minor ones, and after six weeks was um 
awarded the coveted title of advanced driver, which uh, was my, um, which which was what I'd one of the main reasons I'd wanted to join in the first place. So earlier on, you mentioned pursuing vehicles through red lights. What's the protocol when you go through a red light after a vehicle? The protocol is you treat the red light as a stop sign. It used to be a give way. It's now a stop sign. Otherwise, you you come to a halt. You make sure you're clear. Then you go through. Um, If, as a result, as happens regularly, people coming through the green light crash into each other, which does happen, then your actions are looked at. The black black box is downloaded to see how fast you approached. Um, And even though you've stopped at the red light, other people crash into each other you you could still be culpable so you treat them extremely carefully um fortunately with the santa case um he was bowing through red lights and getting lucky i was stopping at the red light make sure it's clear and then with a three liter amiga boom i was on his tail again so i had we had the 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 car had the power to uh, be able to afford to stop and then and check it was clear and then go through and still catch up have you ever had anyone get away yes (laughs) (laughs) Um, my very very first car chase um, was um, in my first week of night shifts after um, qualifying Um, it was a quiet night and suddenly the radio burst into life with the area car which is the the area cars are the high performance pursuit and response vehicles which at the time was a Ford Sierra 2 litre which was okay you know it was quite nice to drive Um, the area car which covers Kensington burst into life on the radio, they were chasing a van involved in a smash and grab at the jewellers. So um, so I piped up, yeah, we piped up, yeah, we'll, we'll help them. And then the third car piped up with, yeah, we'll help as well. And Matt, you stay back because you're the new boy kind of thing. So fair enough, you know, I was relegated to third position in this pursuit because I was new. I'd never had a chase before. Um, and I was frustrated, but accepted it. And then the chase went through Shepherd's Bush into East, into Acton Lane, into East Acton, into East Churchfield Road, where there is a level crossing, which everybody knows is not level at all. This transit van involved in smashing grab hurtled through the crossing. The first police car, which was from Kensington, tried to do the same, grounded out, ripped the sump off the engine and died. The second police car, which was the one that told me to hang back, braked but hit the oil slick, spun out and hit a parked car. And I came to a halt without crashing. And watching this smash and grab, the lights of the, the van involved in the smash and grab disappearing into the distance and thinking, it's my first chase and I'm told, know your place, but I didn't crash. Mm. <laughs> and the other one that allowed to get away was I was very cross with myself because I succumbed to um, red mist, which is a phrase used when you, you are so focused on what you're doing that you ignore the dangers. Um hasn't happened to me that often but a couple of occasions when it did happen one was um pursuing a stolen moped which had somehow managed to travel down um i think the m4 all the way from wales to london without crash helmets without l plates um and none of the police forces that passed through had even noticed it nobody reported it but we were we were chasing this moped 50 miles an hour um and i was getting drawn in getting getting too close and i remember my my colleague who was sat next to me saying exact, exact words for fuck's sake, for fuck's sake, Matt, you're going to kill him. Um, and suddenly I snapped out of it and I backed off and let them escape. And I realised afterwards, I thought, what if we'd had a collision, if they'd fallen off? Falling off on a motorway without a crash helmet is never going to have a good ending. So there'd be an, ing- an in- inquiry, which will involve our in-car video audio being seized. 
and my colleague being heard to say, fuck's sake, Matt, you're going to kill him, and me ignoring it, my feet wouldn't touch the ground. So that was one that I allowed to get away, and I was kicking myself afterwards because I'd got drawn into to Red Mist. Um, and the only other time when um, I got drawn into Red Mist was chasing a stolen Porsche, which we'd chase for a long time, chasing it, losing it, chasing it, losing it around um, um, Bushy, Watford, that northwest London area. Um, and afterwards, I watched back the video. We eventually caught it. He crashed and we caught the guy. Um, I uh, watched back my in-car video recording and absolutely cringe. And I see myself approaching with restriction, at the according to the speed trace, 72 miles an hour through a with restriction. And afterwards, the following day, I thought, I'm going to go and check that because that sounded a bit tight. So I went back to the same with restriction with a tape measure. And there's three inches either side of the wing mirrors to the steel bollards. And I'd gone through at 72 miles an hour. I thought, this has to stop. <laughs> yeah. What happened to the 32-year-old barrister's clerk known as Nath Banda? He was the guy in the robbery in the um, uh, off-license who was shot. Okay. Oh, that's that, got that's uh, that one. a yes. crash scene that led to a rapist getting caught. Ooh. Yes, that was. Um, Someone done their research this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this this story has been heavily anonymised by myself and, and Nicola, the ghostwriter, and then further anonymised by the lawyers um, because um, the victim at the time was a, a young child. She would now be an adult, obviously, and there must never ever be any anything that can identify her. So. The anonymized version is, um, which is factually correct, but we've changed enough facts to, um, enough um, identification to uh, anonymize it. Um, a car overturned on a, a main road out of London, the A40. Um, elderly driver who was hanging upside down by his seatbelt, uh, semi conscious. So lots of police, lots of ambulance, fire brigade, etc. I was. Um, came along on a police motorbike. All the scene stuff was being dealt with, so I volunteered to be the continuity officer, which the, the official role of the continuity officer is you accompany a seriously injured or deceased casualty from the scene to the hospital, hand them over to a named medic, um, and that's so the idea is that when, if the guy dies and it goes to a post-mortem, the pathologist is doing the post-mortem on the right body. It's, it's continuity. In reality, the role is wider than that. You're also responsible for... Um, liaising with any relatives, with identifying the person you've taken to the hospital, basically anything, seizing clothing, anything that involves dealing with that person. So I accompanied this guy in the ambulance to hospital. Um, he's starting to regain consciousness. Well, I search his clothing to try and find his wallet identification. I uh, found his wallet, which um, check for ID. So yeah, he's got his national insurance card. Okay, so we're on the right road here. And then I noticed the top of the wallet, brown leather wallet, had been um, sliced open with a razor and then sealed with superglue. And straight away, I've, I've seen this before at Notting Hill Carnival, it's a way of hiding drugs. You, know, you, you, you prize up the, the, the back, the leather part of the wallet from the liner, stuff your drugs in there, glue it shut, and then it's, it can be easily missed in a search. So I prized it open, and this, I thought, yeah, there's something in there, it's bulky. So I tipped it out, and out fell eight Polaroid photographs of our man raping a child. <sighs> and I sort of dropped these things in horror. And, right, okay, 
we've got to get on this because this is this is now gone from being a minor careless driving incident to something much more serious. So I, I showed the photograph to the consultant and said, this is a child, isn't it? And the consultant was like, definitely that 10-year-old, maybe even eight. I subsequently found out I was possibly breaking the law doing that because showing photographs of that nature to anybody is very strictly controlled. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so I called the trial protection unit at the Met at Scotland Yard. They sent two detectives down. Um, the driver turned out to be have very minor injuries, just a bit of whiplash, bumped on the head. Um, he was arrested on suspicion of possession of child pornography and of rape. Um, was was he the person in the photo? Mm-hmm. Yes, he'd uh, in at least two of the photographs. He t- the the photos were taken in a mirror with his oh, face with his wow. face visible. And was it a female child or a male child? Female child. Oh, disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the. The detectives did an absolutely splendid job. They could have they, they could have charged the guy with possession of the photographs and be done with it. But clearly the priority was to identify the girl. Um so they um did a, a three week investigation to to trace this girl. He she was eventually found many miles from London in the county. Um the offence had happened four years earlier when she'd been she'd been eight, she was now now twelve. And um Meanwhile, they'd had a um, specialist search team search this guy's flat and they'd found in a drawer tiny slivers of paper which went to the laboratory and they did a mechanical fit with the photographs in the wallet. He'd, he'd trimmed the photos down to fit in his wallet and thereby establishing an evidential link between him, the wallet, and his home address and the photographs. They all tied in together. He still denied it. He still denied that he was there anything to do with him. Uh, so roll forward about... Um, uh, six months, the girl has been interviewed on video. She's given a shocking account of um, how this guy had, had raped her over a period of years um, in the tragically well-known tale of It's Our Little Secret, Don't Tell Anybody. Do you know how he came to enter her life? Um, I do, but I can't disclose that because that might uh, lean to him, lead to identification. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, there there is a uh, he he did he just did let's <laughs> leave it at that um it went to court uh, the old bailey um and um the girl gave evidence via video link and she was spectacularly good mm-hmm. um things that um intimate details that a 12 year old would not know unless the unless it was true you know stuff she couldn't make up uh on one day of the trial um the girl's father leapt out of the public gallery and sprinted across towards the dock to try and attack the defendant. Um, and I had to rugby tackle him um, and drag him out of the court against every moral fibre in my body. Um, outside, he's very apologetic. And he's like, I'm really sorry just to see that animal sitting there denying everything and smirking. And I'm like, well, I understand. I said, I've got a young daughter myself and I, I get it. I do, but I had to do. I had to stop you. And he's like, I, I'm really, I understand. I'm really sorry. Um, end of the trial, he was unanimously found guilty of all the charges. He was um, he was jailed for a total of 32 years, but with concurrent sentences, he would actually end up serving eight. Um, except he wouldn't because um, he um, he died in prison three years later. Was he attacked? Um, I hope so, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, me too. Yeah, mm. um, and 
But afterwards, after the trial, outside the court, um, the girl's parents um, approached me. I get a bit emotional at this point. Um, And they said, thank you for giving us our daughter back. Wow. And that was... Yeah, that that's uh, made the job all worthwhile. You know, we certainly so. salute you for that. What yeah. a monster! Oh, absolutely, yes. And yeah. it, it not previously known to any agency, no previous convictions. Um, you don't get to the age he was at. He was in his in his sixties, without you know, just become a paedophile overnight. You know, so no. whether or not he had other victims, we never found out. No. What do you think possesses someone like that to take pictures? Is it? Like a trophy or something. Like That's serial killers have trophies. Yeah. Trophy, um, a, a sexual, sexual stimulant, memorabilia. Yeah. Um, of course, his 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 error was having his face in at least two of them. But mm. that that made it easier, much easier for us to prove it was him. And he might have got away with it, but for the road traffic accident. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Fate. Yeah, might have, yeah. I mean, we searched his car. We thought we might find a boot full of kids' toys and stuff, clothing. Oh. Nothing. Nothing at all. Oh. Nothing. So. Um, he stayed under the radar for a long time, but but he's dead now, so every cloud. So how did yeah. it make you feel when Sergeant Michael told you that your arrest figures were too high? <laughs> yeah, um, my um, I, I'd always wanted to, as I said before, my ambition was to be an advanced driver. You had to get noticed for the right reasons. So I was taking every call going. I was arresting everybody I could. <laughs> I was trying to notice for the right reasons. Some of the sort of old sweats on the team. The old sweat is a term for a senior, experienced PC, very you know, um, very knowledgeable. Um, but occasionally that has negatives with it as well. Um, they'd complained to this sergeant. He was quite a young sergeant and quite impressionable. And they said, just you know, get Matt to wind in a bit, will you? His figures are comparing badly, unfavorably with ours. Uh, at this point, the sergeant or any supervisor has two choices. You can say, well, up your game a bit, or he can do what, or you roll over and tell me to uh, to wind it in a bit. So um, he chose the easier option to tell me to not to be so enthusiastic, not to be so proactive, because of the contrast between me and some of the others was um, was embarrassing for them. Did you? No. I applied <laughs> for a transfer instead. I, um, I'd been at the Shepherd's Wish nine years at this point. I thought, yeah, it's, uh, it's time to move on. And uh, quite uh, fittingly, in the in the, at the top of the charts at the time was "Stay Another Day" by E17 and "Think Twice" by Celine Dion. Love that one. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I thought twice, but I won't stay another day. So I uh, I moved on and um, started five years at Harrow. So that's uh, that 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 was um, I was probably stagnating a bit by this point after nine years at one point, but that was the final straw for me to tell that I'm being too I'm working too hard and too enthusiastic. Okay, it's time to go. Yeah. So, Matt, what happened to Kieran? Kieran was a, another example of of me reluctantly having to deal with a bereaved family. Um, he was at a he was at a, an all night party in Harrow at a flat. Um, the uh, there was all sorts of alcohol and drugs and substances at the party. When they'd woken up in a in a haze on the um, on the Sunday morning, um, this guy Kieran was was clearly deceased behind the sofa. Obviously overdosed on something, uh, so police were called. Ambulance was called, and I went to um, to deal with this as a as a, a drugs death. Um, it struck a chord with me a bit because I um, got his details, and he was born the same day as me, he had the same date of birth, so he was thirty four years old, I think. So dealt with the scene, got the body shipped off to undertakers uh, to the mortuary. and then it was my job to go and tell his parents, who lived a few miles away, also in Harrow. Um, so, uh, a job I 
hate doing as I've, as I've said, you know. Um, so I, I knocked at the door and this, uh, this lady, um, answered the door, a little bit frosty, uh, being disturbed on a Sunday morning by a police officer. Um, and I said, um, you know, can I come in? I've got some news for you. And she's like, no, if you've got something to tell me, just tell me now here on the doorstep. So I thought, okay, well, I, I have no choice then, you know. So I said to her, well, I'm afraid it's your, your son, Kieran. He's, um, he's been at a party last night and he's, um, I'm afraid he's passed away and he's, he's been taken to Norfolk Park Mortuary. And without even breaking a sweat, she said, drugs, was it? And I'm like, well, there were some substances knocking around, so possibly yes. And she was said, well, it's sad, I suppose, but boys will be boys. Thank you, officer. Oh, my God. And, Pro- uh, and shut the door. Probably oh, wow. a shock reaction. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I'm left there outside the house thinking, did that just happen? You know, and I've just told her her son is dead. I mean, presumably there was some kind of uh, frosty relationship with her son, but uh, not the reaction I was expecting. You know, and to tell her that son, who was the same age as me, had just died. And she was like, oh, well. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys, yeah. Well. What happened when at 3 a.m. a call came in, a 23-year-old lad in a VW Golf had hurtled into a roundabout at high speed? Um, this was a top end of Harrow, um, obviously on the night shift at 3 a.m. Um, and I was uh, second on scene, the first officer on scene, my colleague, who'd got there and he was dealing with the accident and I pulled up and said, right, what do you want me to do? And he was clearly very shocked, this officer. He's a 20-something veteran, very hardened to it all, but he was clearly shocked. I said, is it, what's up, is it fatal? He's like, no, it's not fatal, it's much worse. Um, so, and I could hear screaming coming from the car, from this Volkswagen that had crashed into the pedestrian railings. So I'm like, okay, go, go on then, <laughs> what, what's happened? And basically what had happened is this Volkswagen way too fast into the roundabout, gone off the far side into the pedestrian railings and the railings had somersaulted through the windscreen of the car and then gone out in through the bottom of the driver's seat via the driver's genitals. Oh! He was um, he was pinned to the seat by a two-inch wide metal spike, basically. So I was quite happy to say it. I'll stay here and direct the traffic then. I'll, I'll shut the road. Uh, the fire brigade cut the railings. At, they can't take it out. Obviously, they cut the railings at both ends, cut the seat out. Um, they managed to get this lad out, get him to the ambulance with a about a, a foot-long metal spike still piercing his genitals. And um, I'm like, yeah, give me a fatal any day rather than... You know, my eyes still water thinking about it. Do you know what happened to him? Uh, he survived, um, whether or not he went on to have children, I don't know. But um, I imagine it, um, it would have needed quite a bit of reconstruction from what I gather. So this railing was two inches wide and it had gone straight through and was pinning him to the seat. Mm. When you say straight through, you're talking the ball sack. Yeah, and, and, and his penis as well, yeah, straight through. <laughs> wow. Men's eyes are watering everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and rightly yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So the next thing then is the jury protection. Yes. Yes, that was in the mid nineties. Um, I'd um, after I think ten or eleven years doing frontline response, I fancied a bit of a change. When this opportunity came along, uh, there was a very large corruption trial uh, underway at the Old Bailey uh, with a defendants, number of defendants with sufficient um, gangland connections to be a serious threat. So the judge had declared that 
every member of the jury would have 24-7 police protection, uh, which is quite a big operation. That involved that needs six police officers for every juror, so 72 officers, six for each of the 12. And our brief was to stick with this juror 24-7 for, for the whole six weeks of the trial, working in shifts, um, doing 12-hour shifts. So we'd have uh, the, the six officers for each juror, two would be guarding her, day shift, two would be night shift and two would be on a day off and you'd rotate uh, We would. the only time we would not stick to the juror was when they were actually in court um, then we would have some downtime but during at night we would park outside the house and keep an eye out and do short foot patrols around the house look for anybody lurking and during the day when they weren't in court we'd follow them wherever they went to go need to go um, and we did that for six weeks uh, over Christmas uh, the trial started at um, late December, mid-December, and uh, went on until January. Was there any attempts from the gang members? Not for our juror, no. There was a couple of um, suspicious incidents where um, we figured we'd probably been filmed by the press um, because the fact the jury were under protection was common knowledge. The juror's location was a closely guarded secret, obviously, for that, but the press are quite resourceful. Uh, and we figured a couple of times the these um, press might be trying to get pictures of officers asleep on duty, you know, because obviously tw- sitting outside of his house for 12 hours overnight is quite a demand on your eyelids trying to stay awake. Um, but there was no, as far as I'm aware, there, no, there was no threats, no overt or, or covert threats to any juror. So this system must have worked. Wow. You then worked undercover, and you've got a story to do with Edgard. Edgar, sorry, Pierce. Edgar Pierce, yeah. Edgar Pierce. 68 year old, um, known notoriously as the Mardi Gras bomber. Ooh. Um, he had um, a real problem with initially with Barclays Bank and then subsequently Sainsbury's, and he started creating and planting um, bombs, homemade bombs, uh, which left um, several exploded. At least one person was very seriously injured, a few others got minor injuries. So the Met launched Operation Heath to throw masses of resources at this to this problem to try and catch this guy. Um, and our job was to stake out Sainsbury's in Harrow for uh, several weeks over the winter of whatever year it was, I forget the year, late 90s. And we worked in three three teams. One team was in a derelict flat overlooking Sainsbury's looking for suspicious people. We had very little to go on. We knew it was a white male and he's probably in his 60s. That was all we knew. Um, if we saw somebody that looked suspicious, we would radio the uh, follow team outside. They would follow the guy away from the store, then stop and search him. And the third team were working undercover in the store as Sainsbury's staff and customers. So I did my first um, four weeks, I think, in the observation point, which was quite hard. It was a um, sub-zero temperatures. There was no heating or anything this flat. And it was long days looking out the window, looking for people who looked like they might be the bomber. It was very um, uh, demanding, boring. But when we rotated into the uh, work in the store, that was much more entertaining. I was a, a shopper, so I used to walk around the store with a basket, picking up only cans and dried stuff. You can't pick up fresh stuff because it has to be disposed of. Uh, walk around looking for the for the bomber. And every when I had a full basket, I would dump it out the back so a member of staff could restock the shelves and I'd pick up a, another basket. 
my colleague on the team, he was a staff member. Uh, he was posing undercover as an assistant manager. He had the Sainsbury's uniform and everything. Wow. And he was 100% into his role. He was, <laughs> um, he was I, I, I would turn a corner as a shopper into an island and bump into him. He was actually um, uh, briefing a new member of staff about product placement and how this works. And bear in mind, this is an undercover police officer doing this, pretending to be a, a store manager. And the whole, the, the, the operation started and finished without us catching the bomber, sadly. He got caught elsewhere. Um, but it was very frustrating to work in the store. We were told at the briefing that you will see stuff going on in a supermarket. You'll see shoplifting. You'll see pickpocketing. You might even see robbery. You have to ignore it. You're looking for a terrorist. So stay focused. And that's easier said than done because I, I saw several examples of shoplift, blatant shoplifting. I saw a, a, a purse being stolen. Oh, no. And it's really hard. Your every instinct is just to drop the basket and intervene, and you, you, and you can't. Uh, so the, the our operation ended. We were stood down after about six weeks or eight weeks. Uh, but then a few weeks later, the my colleague, Liam, I think his pseudonym is, uh, was contacted by Sainsbury's saying, do you want the job? Assistant manager, you did so well at it. No way. Um, and these, I mean, they knew he was an undercover cop, but they said, you've absolutely blown this away. And if you want the job for real, leave the police and come and work for us. It's yours. <laughs> Um, and he was he was very flat. He declined, um, but he got he got to keep as a mentor. The mentor he got the Sainsbury's assistant manager badge. He got to keep that. <laughs> did the other staff members know that he was undercover, or did did they keep that under wraps? Uh, I think the management knew. Uh, I'm not sure how much they'd um, they, they'd pass the information around. There was the, the the risk of a leak to this guy was considered quite low because he was known to be a loner. He's not part of some big criminal network. But I think the the actual intelligence about who was doing what and why was kept as under wraps as as was necessary at the time. Ah. Well, and when the Ford Focus fled the scene of a fatal shooting, yeah, that was the one with uh, where I wasn't wearing my body armor when I'd been at court. Oh, okay. gosh, yeah. these have probably possibly skipped out a chronological okay. order, unfortunately. All right. What is a white knuckle car chase? Uh, white knuckle is it's a phrase from theme parks that you know if you're on one of these really fast rides you're you're gripping so tight that your knuckles go white. Uh, that's that's all that means. Oh right. So what about this killer then of the kids that runner over was it? Yeah, Kuranathan and Anthakumar. Um, took me a while to learn that. That was uh, that started Christmas Day. I don't know what it is with me and Christmas days. But things seem to happen. Um, in two thousand and three. And I was off duty, Christmas, rare Christmas day off. I uh, got a phone call on my mobile from a colleague who was at the scene of a, a, this crash in Southall. He said, there's a six-year-old child been run over. Doesn't look like she's going to make it. Um, can't get hold of the on-call sergeant. Do you have his number, etc." So I helped this guy out. I said, do you want me to come in? He's like, no, I don't, I don't need you today. You can enjoy Christmas day, but you can pick it up tomorrow. So... Uh, at the time, my kids were um, I think ten and six, I think, or um, no, it must be no, it must be younger than that. They were eight and eight and four. They were. Um, so I was watching them sort of playing around, like around with each other, and thinking, you know, there's a six-year-old who's just being possibly killed in an accident. How would I feel, you know? And so enjoyed the rest of Christmas Day. Then Boxing Day, I went in and, and picked up the investigation and became engrossed immediately. The guy had. Um, 
you're driving down a bus lane in Southall Broadway. Southall is a predominantly um, Sikh, Hindu and Muslim area, so even though it's Christmas Day, a majority of shops are open. So this um, this young girl, six-year-old um, Fatima, had been out with her mum to a shop, and as they're crossing back over the road, she'd run on ahead of mum across the bus lane where there shouldn't have been any traffic, and this car came up the inside and, and hit her. Um, knocked her down. She'd gone over the over the bonnet, and then this guy had driven off. And then 40 minutes later, he'd phoned 999 and reported his car stolen, which is a, a very common tactic. People do this when they've been involved in a hit-and-run accident or a traffic offence. They'll phone 999, report it stolen, and then be like, oh, it couldn't possibly be me, me driving officer. My car was stolen, you know, and it's um, it happens with, um, a, a, with quite um, a lot of frequency. So I set about... Um, getting the evidence that would prove who the driver was. I suspected it was this guy, Anantakumar, who was the owner. I suspect it was him, but I had to prove it. And as the investigation unfolded over the next weeks and months, I became increasingly frustrated because I'd come up with a dozen ways I could prove he was lying, but I couldn't prove he was driving. And there's a big difference. Uh, for example, when I interviewed him, he told us that he'd... Um, the, there's photographs in the middle of the book that show him in a shop... Um, he'd said that he uh, that's where he was when he phoned 999 to report his car stolen mm. we got the mobile phone analysis from his provider who put him at least six miles away so he knew he was lying but it didn't prove he was driving uh, the breakthrough came when um, I was working late one night and I was using this very new bit of technology called Excel which uh, is now very common obviously I'd received Anantha Kumar's phone records from his service provider and I put them in an Excel spreadsheet and I was just playing around with filters and sorting and everything and just basically getting to grips with how this thing worked. Sorting it to various columns and orders and chronological things. And it was when I um, was looked down the date and the time of phone calls that were made from his mobile phone that I thought, well, according to this, he made a phone call at 4am on Boxing Day. Now, I knew that can't be right because he was in custody. We'd arrested him Christmas Day evening. And he was in custody overnight, so that can't be right. So I dug out his custody record and I checked. Um, oh, actually, he was released at 3.53 a.m. So, all right. So he's been released at 3.53 a.m. And seven minutes later, he's made a phone call. Right, we're getting somewhere now. Who's he phoned at four in the morning? I've got a number. Who is it? I'll send it off for a subscriber check. But before I do that... I'll check my case notes and just see if I already know the number. It's a real long shot. And lo and behold, the number popped up as belonging to an independent witness, a passing van driver. So I stopped to take stock and I thought, okay, this guy's been arrested. He's been released at four in the morning on Boxing Day and he's phoned an independent witness, somebody who should be a complete stranger to him. This guy has been an allegedly passing van driver. So I thought, let's pay this van driver a bit of a visit. So I went and... Uh, Knocked on his door at six o'clock the following morning um, and on the doorstep arrested him for perverting the course of justice. And he burst into tears straight away and said, no, no, don't arrest me, please. Oh. And he confessed all. He hadn't been a passing van driver. He'd been in the passenger seat of the car. And Antha Kumar was driving and they concocted the story between them. We've run over this little girl. Let's keep quiet about it. Um, so I said to this guy, this witness, I said, you got two choices. I said, you can stick to your story and go to prison for perverting the course of justice, or you can give me a statement, you can agree to be a witness, and get on with your life. 
your call. There's no honour amongst thieves. He to- chose the second option Obviously. without without hesitating. Mm. Um, so he went to trial. I got authority to charge this guy with uh, Anantakuma with causing death by dangerous driving. Um, this was after, um, to, sorry, just to rewind a bit, the Crown Prosecution Service initially said no. Um, okay, yeah, we accept. He was in the bus lane. He was driving too quick at the bus lane. It's not really enough for dangerous driving. It's more like driving without due care, which would have necessitated, would, would have ended up with him getting a, a fine, maybe a short driving ban for taking a girl's life. It won't, It's not going to happen. So... Back to the drawing board, we need to prove his driving generally was bad. So I started trawling through cameras, bus lane cameras, everything, and I found footage. Again, I've put the photo in the book of him driving through the bus lane, plowing into a puddle, spraying pedestrians with water um, 300 metres before the accident. And the bus lane was... You shouldn't have been in the bus lane. It's, it's a 24-7 bus lane, including bank holidays. So I went back to the CPS and said, I've got the pattern of bad driving 300 metres beforehand. He's splashing pedestrians. He's driving up the bus lane. And they said, okay, well, you can charge with charge him with causing death by dangerous driving, but you won't get a conviction. And I thought, yeah, we'll see. So we went to we went to Isleworth uh, Crown Court. Um, I had two hurdles to overcome. I had to prove he was driving. And if I did that, I had to prove he was driving badly. Because he could say, okay, I was driving, but it was the girl's fault. So um, the first hurdle was overcome when we started doing the identification evidence. He'd been picked out in identification parade by a number of witnesses. And his defense to that was, um, these people are all mistaken, but they picked me out because they all don't know somebody who looks like me. And I thought, this is ludicrous. And his barrister at this point thought, this is ludicrous. Let's have a a short adjournment. So we got an adjournment, came back into court, and the barrister said uh, he's now prepared to accept he was driving at the time of the accident, but maintains there was nothing wrong with his driving. It was the girl's fault. So I was big hurdle overcome, but we still got to make prove it was his fault. Um, so we did this with a... Um, they, they, the defence tried to undermine everything possible. Um, my star witness was 14 years old, um, she was an absolute superstar. Amanpreet was her name. Um, she's entitled, as that age, she's entitled to give evidence from behind the screen. Defence barrister objected to this, which she has no right to do. It's an absolute right. So the judge got quite shirty with him. Um, they called a collision investigator, an independent one, to say that um, the report says she went over the bonnet. The children are too small. They don't go over the bonnet. So they never go over the bonnet. They go under the car. Mm. And as an expert, the golden rule of an expert witness is you should never say never and never say always because it only takes one example to shoot you down. Our barrister promptly provided several examples of children being hit by a car and going over the bonnet. So he was discredited. Uh, They called a consultant trauma surgeon who said uh, the judge sensed a rat here. He said, I'll speak to the surgeon in the absence of the jury. And this surgeon had... He had more letters after his name than I've got in mine. You know, he, he would he could tell you black is white, and the jury would believe him. And he confidently said that, in his opinion, this car was doing no more than twenty miles an hour. So it, well, we'd estimated it was more like forty. Um, so it couldn't have been dangerous. So the judge was like, "What training have you had in vehicle dynamics? What training have you had in accident reconstruction? How many child victims of 
fatal accident have you dealt with? How many times have you been to a crash scene? Blah, blah, blah. And you just crumbled. You had no training in dynamics, no training in reconstruction, never been to a crash scene, probably dealt with half a dozen child victims. So the judge was like, you're not coming in front of the jury. You're, you're, not, you're not getting that. So he went away with his tail between his legs. And the final tactic the jury, the defence tried, because they were trying everything to keep this guy out of prison, was to, to undermine me. Um, I'd hit a technical problem with the footage from the bus lane, which is, uh, so the still is in the book. Uh, the bus company supplied it on a DVD. The Crown Court had VHS video players. Now, it's very quick to transfer VHS to DVD. Easy, technical, technically very easy. DVD to VHS is a nightmare. And our video lab had said it'll take them six weeks to do. So I thought, okay, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do this. So I took the DVD evidence home with me, played it on my DVD player, on my TV, set up my camcorder on the tripod, filmed the screen, which was recorded to VHS. And took that, copied that, took it to court to produce that as the evidence on the VHS tape that the jury could see. So far, so good, but somehow the defence got wind of this <laughs> and said, this evidence was on a, a DVD. Can I just, how come, it, how come it's now on a VHS tape? So I thought, I was in the witness box at this point, under oath. Well, the lab said it would take six to eight weeks, so I took it home, I played it on my TV, and I filmed it with a camcorder. And the defence was, you know, this is a clear breach of protocol, Your Honour. Can I ask this be excluded? This evidence be excluded? And the judge said, nope. <laughs> We're going to show it. So, oh, thank God for that. Yeah. So, so that was that. Um, and eventually, yeah, the evidence all complete. The, the jury retired and very quickly came back in with unanimous guilty on every count, which was um, causing death by dangerous driving, failing to stop after a collision, Um Fraud, because he'd filed an insurance claim, uh, a false insurance claim for, for theft of his car, even when this all was, was all unraveling around his ears, he still tried to maintain the, the uh, deception. Um, he was jailed for three years for the death, a further nine months for the fraud. Personally, I think he got off lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, the The harsh truth was the the girl was a bit culpable in running across the road, which is why the sentence was a bit weak. The judge has to take these things into account. Um, but outside the court, the um, girl's parents, um, Maku and Abakar, I think, were just delighted from a position of being fairly hostile towards the Met because you know they were asylum seekers. They'd been through a lot. They had uh, felt it was almost a stigma. They thought they wouldn't get justice, that we would just write them off, which was never going to happen. Um there was hugs and tears all around, and um, thank you for getting justice. And that was another. So you, say you got twelve years? Month. No, you no. got three years and nine months. Oh, three years and nine months. Yeah. Would he have to do half of that? He did have to do half. I would think. Yeah, he was. He was again no previous convictions. Like like the rapist, he was not in the system. No, nothing I've got a few questions on this one then. So, in the beginning of the story, you said that your colleague told you you will never get a conviction. The Crime Prosecution Service said that. Yeah. Why did they say that? Um. There are some CPS lawyers who like easy options. They like to get a high conviction rate. And they would know that um, if we charge this guy with careless driving, um, his lawyer might say, plead guilty. You're getting off lightly. 
if we charged him with causing death by dangerous driving, uh, we would have a much more of an uphill struggle and less certainty of a conviction. Uh, I pushed and pushed and pushed for the higher charge because I cannot watch this guy walk away from killing a six-year-old with a fine. It wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. So there were some Crown prosecutors are historically reluctant to go for higher charges. For that reason, they like to get their hit rate, their pros- their conviction rate high. You got an award for this, didn't you? Yeah, um, there's an award called the, the Livia Award, which is um, it was set up in honour of Livia Galley Atkinson, who was a schoolgirl who was um, killed in a in a hit and run in North London, Enfield, I think. Um, her parents. Um, George and Gilletta set up the award, which is presented annually at the Houses of Parliament to um, a an officer who's well excelled in the field of road death um, and traffic related stuff. I was nominated, um, made the shortlist, got interviewed at uh, the House of Commons, and um, then then got the award in two thousand and four. So, uh, so my next question is to do with the speed limit. Then, so he tried to say he was going twenty five. Did you say? He, uh, 20 or under, yeah. 20 or under, yeah. in a bus lane. Yeah. So if you are driving illegally in a bus lane and you're going 20 or under, what's the difference if you're in there and it's illegal to be in there in the first place? Is it just, is that what the speed limit is on that road? It's a thir- The speed limit is 30. 30. Um, the, the, there was two lanes. The, the lane one is the bus lane. The lane two was, was solid traffic. It was heavy traffic. You see that. Yeah, so he's um, he's mm-hmm. good at the inside oh, for, to avoid the traffic. Yeah. Um, but they're but they're separate matters. The fact he was in the bus lane is evidence of his um, just illegal driving because he shouldn't have been there. Um, the speed is a um, if he'd been doing twenty, um, he would have had a chance to see Fatima and to break. And if he had hit her at twenty, she'd have probably had survival been survival injuries. So our, part of our evidence was the fact he was yeah he was in the bus lane. That's a given. That's one. That's one part of the offence, but the fact that he he was doing the speed he was doing, which our collision investigator estimated to as thirty to forty, up the inside of stationary traffic in the dark and the wet, uh, was all part and parcel of being dangerous. Basically, yes. did he give an explanation of why he was in the bus lane? Was it just to try and save time? He didn't. He didn't give an explanation. He um, every interview I did with him, and I did about four interviews before he was charged. Um, he was just sticking to this story, which was drove to the shop in Hayes to do some shopping, parked outside, did my shopping, came out. Uh, my car wasn't where I parked it, so I walked 300 metres left, 300 metres right in case I'd forgotten where I parked it. It wasn't there, so I caught a bus home. Uh, I phoned 999 to report it stolen and caught a bus home. Um, and that was um, that, that was basically all he ever told me. It was at no point until halfway through the trial did he even accept he was driving. Did he have a family of, of his own? Yeah, he had a wife. Um, I think he had kids, but I'm not entirely sure. So when he, <clears throat> when he was confronted with the reality of the situation then, was his claim that she just walked into the in front of the car and it was her fault? Is that what he was trying to say? In, in court, yes. When he changed his story and accepted he was driving, he was basically saying it was entirely her fault for running straight across in front of him. Sounds like an asshole. When you told a passenger that you will go to jail for this. Mm-hmm. Can the passenger be held li- liable for the illegal activity of the driver if this happens? No, not for the driving, no, but for perverting the course of justice by giving us a false ah. statement, um, which is, is which carries up to seven years in jail. 
by by saying that uh, he was a passing van driver, giving us this 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 pony story that he was going the other way. He just saw the accident and a, a vague description of the driver um, is all perverting the course of justice. So it's his responsibility to report that right away. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah, his responsibility to tell the truth? Certainly, yeah, 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 gotcha. Mm-hmm. But we agreed. But I, I agreed with the CPS that if. If he now retracts that statement and becomes my key prosecution witness, would you agree not to charge him with anything? And the CPS were quite happy to do that. Of course. Okay. So I'm looking at some of your dashing photos and you had a <laughs> a domestic incident involving a shower screen. Yeah. That was um, in Hayes, went to a call to a, a domestic between a husband and wife and uh, what I'd call sadly a fairly standard thing, you know, a lot of argy-bargy between husband and wife, rowing. And I was working with um, a female officer who I think I've called Jenny, I'm not sure. Hey. And um, we attended the scene and as standard practice, you separate them, you speak with one each. So um, she was dealing with um, the wife in one room and I. it's a small flat. So uh, there's a, a golden rule with domestics is that you shouldn't speak with people in the master bedroom because it's too much of an intimate space and you shouldn't speak with them in the kitchen because there's too many weapons. <laughs> so I was left with just with the small bathroom. So I said to the guy, we'll, we'll speak in there. So I was chatting to him. He was quite a big bloke, quite drunk and quite agitated, very fired up. So I'm trying to calm him down and say, well, how are we going to resolve this? You know, you, you know, neighbours have called, they can hear the fisticuffs, the screaming, the banging around. And then my radio sparked into life with my colleague in the other room who said the phrase Sarge he's got to come in which is you know means he's got to be arrested unfortunately he heard this before I had a chance to do anything we just ended up in a one-on-one fist fight um tumbled backwards into the through the through the shower into the bath into the there's a shower over the bath tiled wall and um he's sort of throwing punch after punch, trying to connect, and he, and then he grabbed my hair and ran my face straight into the tiled wall, which is why in the photos I've got a split cheek. Yeah. Um, it's only lasted about the 20, 30 seconds it took for a colleague to come to my assistance, and we managed to get him down and overpower him um, with the wife standing in the living room screaming hysterically. Um, but um, he was charged, he went to court, and he got uh, he pleaded guilty and... He had to pay me five hundred pound compensation, so you know every cloud again. <laughs> every cloud, but that's not the only injury you've sustained, is it? No, no, it's not. No, um, this I, one here cuts up your arms. What was that one? Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, the, the um, I, I caught a burglar uh, red-handed. I chased him across a few gardens until he was cornered, and then um, he just we, we and then ended up in a one-on-one fight, and he had really, really sharp fingernails, and that's. <sighs> That's why my arms and my face look like they do in those photos. It looks like you've been attacked by a cat. It does, yeah. That's, yeah. How, that's how it felt. Yeah. 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 That's that's exactly how it felt, yeah. Oh, wow. So in late January 2000, you were driving home after a night shift listening to Heart FM when a terrifying road rage episode exploded around you. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, you're in a bit of a daze normally coming off nights, you know, because all you want to do is get to bed. So the, the, the it was a Sunday morning, as I recall, the A40 was pretty much empty. So I'm driving along, um, just cleared a junction in the middle lane, and then I um, no, I'm in lane one. A rover came past me in lane two, and then a tow truck came past him in lane three. So, and then 
at this point, I see nothing to attract my attention. And then suddenly the rover, the tow truck, sorry, suddenly swerved to the left, deliberately rammed the rover, sending it spinning 360, 720 degrees in a shower of broken glass and plastic as I'm swerving around it, trying to avoid being part of the accident. Uh, the So I've got the rover is now wrecked on my left and the tow truck is on my right, speeding away while the driver puts a balaclava on. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that this triggered me thinking something's not right. Yeah. <laughs> so I got my phone, phone 999, said I'm an off-duty officer following this vehicle involved in it. Uh, guys have got balaclava and he's just rammed another car. Um, timing was bad because it was shift change over time. So there was a lot of um, police cars and police officers were at the police stations having briefings. There was nobody out on patrol. So I followed this tow truck for a couple of miles Um it comes off the A40 at the target roundabout through several red lights with me following, again, trying to not to crash. Um, and at this point, I notice there's a yellow Fiat Punto behind me also doing three red lights. So I didn't give that. I was too focused on my 999 call in the car. I didn't give that second thought at the moment. Anyway, this guy shot off and I carried him chasing him. It looks like a mirror. The Punto was falling behind. It was somewhere else. So did they give it a second thought? The tow truck crashed. The guy jumped out and ran off. I chased after him across a kid's playground. Um, caught up with him. I dropped my mobile phone into the grass. Unfortunately, it stayed connected to Scotland Yard. Um, and this guy was a, a, a very stocky, muscular guy who didn't want to be arrested. So um, and he, he managed to land a good few punches on me and... I'm trying to. I'm shouting into my phone. Where's that backup? I need backup now. And the the guy, the operator, shouting. We're trying to dig them out. We're trying to get them to you. Uh, trying to get police cars to come to me. And then I looked across the grass and I saw the silhouette of the yellow punto and two people bailing out and running towards me. And I thought, that's it. I'm screwed. That's this guy. Somehow this tow truck driver has got his backup before me. Um, fortunately, I was mistaken. Um, this was a Really nice couple on their way to work. Seen the crash, same as me. And they'd also decide to help out. So I'm rolling around. This guy's throwing punches at me. And I shouted at these two, I'm police officer. And they, the guy who I've called Michael just leapt straight in and piled into this bloke with me. And we managed to pin him down. While the girl who I've called Gemma, she was on the phone to Scotland Yard saying, we've got this off-duty police officer. We're trying to help out. This is where we are, blah, blah, blah. And after a few minutes, um police car turns up. So I'm just shouting, handcuffs, and them handcuffs. They run across the grass, give me the cuffs, and we lock this guy up um, and put him to his feet. And he's this guy is sweating, and he's snarling and swearing and spitting. And and uh, he looks at, um, at this point, the girl, who's only a youngster, Gemma, she bursts into tears because of the shock of it all. And he looks, at, looks her straight in the eye, and he sort of says, I'll remember your face, you fucking bitch. And she stops crying, looks him right in the eye, and then boots him in the balls so hard. <laughs> yes, Literally go. lifts him off the ground. I mean, me and this other police officer were holding an arm each, and he's lifted off the ground, so we dropped him into the grass. <laughs> and he's screaming his head off. And like, Did you fucking see that? And I see what? Nothing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he went He went off to um, – he got locked up for um, dangerous driving. There's a few other offences. He had no licence, bits and pieces. Officers went back to the A40 to try and find this smashed-up rover. Nothing. He'd obviously got something to hide as well, so because he cleared off. We never we never found out what it was all about. It might have been a, a drugs-related thing. I mean, um, how common is it for 
uh, people to follow you with your blues and twos on? You know when they do it naughtily, though. Yeah, it's it's quite common with uh, motorbikes. If you're driving a police car cutting through the traffic, you will quite often get dispatch riders and pizza delivery riders forming a snake behind you because <laughs> yeah. you're cutting a line through the traffic. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Although it, it happened to me once the other way around. I was on a police motorbike cutting a lane, cutting through lanes two and three of heavy traffic. Uh, I looked in my mirror and there was a car following me, making a fourth lane. <laughs> Um, so I, I sort of stopped and, and sort of told him a few facts of life, and he um, he was it was just a chance of trying to make trying to make progress through the rush hour traffic in his Ford Escort. Is is there yeah. a legal term for it? Um, tailgating. Tailgating. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> so you actually worked a fifty six hour shift? Yes. That was that sounds um, like something you make me do. <laughs> that that was um, partly greed and partly stupidity on my part. Um, I was a collision investigator, so my job was full time working out the office, investigating fatal and life threatening, life changing uh, road collisions. And my supervisor, uh, Mick Cheeseman, said to me one day, "Do you want to do double shift?" I got no late shift cover. I was on the early shift, which was six a.m. to two p.m. for these two days. He said, "Do you want to do double shift? Do late shift?" as well so 16 hour shift and in my head that meant work 16 hours go home for eight work 16 hours and then job done i can do that so i said yes it was coming to christmas overtime would be very handy but afterwards some guy in the office said you're an idiot well, why is that he said you have you forgotten that late shift also covers covers on call overnight he said it's tuesday morning he said you might not be in bed till thursday afternoon and i'm like Externally, I said, yeah, well, I can handle it. And internally, I'm going, oh, why didn't I think of that? And that is how it how it panned out. Um, it was call, after call, after call. Um, from um, the, the first night, um, I worked from the late shift, worked through the night at a fatal accident where a, a guy being decapitated. What? Um, how? It, it, um, it was a, a bad combination of a young man, alcohol, and a powerful BMW. Um, he'd um, floored this BMW as a four-liter Alpina or something. Um, fishtailed the car, rear-wheel drive, so the back end started twitching, and he'd flipped it over. Ooh. He hadn't been wearing a seatbelt. He had his window open, and as he's overturned past a tree, the tree has taken his head clean off. Um, he had passengers in who were all wearing seatbelts. Belts they all survived with minor injuries. Um, but that was. Um, that took me till 4, 4.30 in the morning to finish. And then just time to go home, change my shirt, and back to work for 6am. And that then the second night, I finished on time, about 10 o'clock at night. I literally walked in my door and I got called out to um, a, uh, a bin lorry that had crashed into a house uh, in, um, sorry, in North London. Um, two occupants at the back of the house, very, very shocked but uninjured. So I went rushing down to the scene and there's a fully laden bin lorry had misjudged a keep left bollard, gone plowed off the road through the front garden and smashed into the front of this very large detached Georgian house. And and what followed then was a, a comedy of errors because I, I called at the control room. I said, I need two things. I need a heavy duty recovery and I need the borough surveyor because this house is unsafe now. They both turn up together, and I just watched like a tennis match. These two batting off each other. The um, borough surveyor saying, "Right, pull the lorry out. Then we'll get some scaffolding in." And the recovery driver saying, 
If I pull the lorry out, the house might fall down. You need to put the scaffolding in around it first, then I'll pull the lorry out. And the borough surveyor is basically like, look, my party, my call, get the damn lorry out, and we can get the scaffolding up, we can all go home. So the recovery driver was like, your call. So he pulled the bin lorry out, and the house fell down. Oh. Subsequently, um, so this, this is, I know I've gone off a bit of a tangent with a 56-hour shift, but um, so the house fell down. And it was a few weeks later, I was doing a follow-up inquiry from the local authorities. They wanted to speak to the surveyor. And the answer was, he no longer works for us. <laughs> <laughs> We're just he's currently negotiating with the lawyers whose fault that was. Big lawsuit, yeah. though. Yeah, mm. for a big house. So um, that was the... Um, so, yes, I was called out uh, from home, spent all night at that one. And then the same again, just back home in time to change a shirt and back to work again on the Thursday. And then I managed to bimble through... And in between all this was when we came across this suicidal woman on the motorway who tried to climb electricity pile on. Um, that was, uh, again, related to uh, um, going to make non-urgent inquiries, driving up the motorway, the M1, to see a couple of witnesses to a different accident. I wasn't driving. I was so tired. I got somebody else to drive me. I've been awake 40, 48 hours at this point. Um and the control room calls up and say, just to let you know that um, Hertfordshire police responded to a female apparently standing on the motorway with her arms crossed across her chest. Now, this straight away triggered alarm bells ringing because that's a suicide pose. Yeah. Um, and almost as we got the call, we're like, ah, oh, there she is. So we pulled up behind her, um, frantically calling for everybody to shut the motorway uh, because if she was to dart into traffic... Um, it'd be game over. She's dropped her hands away from her chest. We were behind her at this point, she dropped her hands down, and her right hand is a big knife, and her left hand is blood pumping out of her wrist. So it's it's getting a lot more tricky here. I'm trying to, um, and again, I, I have put a photo in the book, of the, a couple of photos in the book from this. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be close enough to basically run her over if she starts to run into traffic, being the lesser of two evils, without being so close that I spook her, make her do something stupid. Anyway, after a while, she exited the motorway across the uh, the barrier and climbed the grass embankment towards a 500,000-volt electricity pylon. And this was time to act, so we'd jump out the car. She started to climb the pylon. Um, and I'm frantically grabbing for my CS gas, my baton, my cuffs, whatever I can do. I'm, this is going to go horrible. In the end, I shouted at her, Get down! Now! And against my expectation, she did. She got off the pile into the grass, and I said, drop the knife, and she did. Oh, this is going well. I said, um, <laughs> have you got any more weapons on you? She's like, yeah, I've got a knife in my back pocket. Okay, so at this point, my colleagues circle around the back of her, and he managed to grab her wrists, and we handcuff her, get the get both the knives. And uh, um, fortunately, the control room had already requested an ambulance, which we'd completely forgotten to do. So we took her back down to the hard shoulder. The motorway was completely deserted at this point. It had been closed at both ends, and it was quite eerie. Uh, ambulance came through. We put her in the ambulance, and she was ferried off to get the right the mental health support that she needed and get her wrist patched up. That was a case of, where were we? Witnesses. Yeah, we were on our way to see some witnesses, and then back to, uh, back to the job. And then 2 o'clock Thursday, uh, the shift ended, 56 hours. Do you think because it was non-stop action, it helped you actually? Mm -hmm. Because if you would have fallen asleep at the desk otherwise. Totally, yeah. Non-stop action, caffeine and Red Bull. I was going to say caffeine and Red Bull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. coffee and Red Bull. Yeah. Uh, wow. Preparing for tragedy. 
Anathakuma case. Yeah. Yeah, that's the case. Oh, that's, that's, oh, okay. that's the, the hit and run, yeah. Little and the Olivia Automate oh, Arena promotion. Okay. So, Let's see where we are then. Yep. Wow. Oxbridge. What is a Met Office police party like at Christmas Day? I've always wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I think they can, they can vary enormously. They're, yeah. They're normally... Um, they're normally quite good natured because um, we have a, a duty to behave in a certain way on and off duty. Uh, there are obvious exceptions. There was one in the press recently about uh, some off duty officer headbutting uh, a member of bar staff who complained he was breaching COVID regulations. So we, he, there are those who let the side down. Uh, the one I've uh, written about in particular, I think. If oh, it's, it's in here, is it? There is one in there, yeah, okay. where um, um, I. Be, our um, sergeant at Harrow had been arrested for curb for curb crawling uh, on duty. Um, he'd um, he'd been he'd uh, we were on a late late shift, six p.m. to two a.m. He'd paraded us all at six p.m., given us our postings, then he disappeared. Uh, we didn't know what happened to him. It turned out he'd got in his own car, driven to King's Cross, and picked up a prostitute right under the watchful eye of Operation Wellin, which is a, an anti uh, drugs and vice operation in that area. Uh, he was chased, he was caught in uniform with a prostitute in his car. Uh, he was suspended. I was given two stripes and told I was in, in charge of the team. Um, and then a few months later, at the Christmas party, we were having a really good time at a pub in Pinner, and he, he walked in the same day that he'd had his misconduct board. And uh, he got himself a pint, he was already drunk. And um, he sat down at the, par- at the table in the stunned silence, and he said... I've just lost my job today. Merry fucking Christmas, everyone. And at that point, everyone, me included, just started making their excuses and left, decided that the night was over. Um, but Christmas parties, generally, they're, they're good. They're, they're, they're not um, not as bad as some office parties where there's the, you have less of a legal responsibility to behave. Uh, well, with Sarah, the 14-year-old shoplifter of Wicked Blue. WKD Blue. Is it Wicked? Is that what it stands for? I think it is wicked. Okay. Yeah. It is, isn't it, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Um, I, I was newly promoted. I was uh, I finished. Um, the, the Anantha Kumar accident investigation was pretty much my swan song at, at accident investigation. I was promoted and transferred out uh, back to the front line. Um, started with six months doing uh, as a permanent custody officer at um, Uxbridge. And um, one of my first customers was this this young lady, uh, um, fourteen years old, who'd been arrested for shoplifting. With she'd been knocking back some WKD blue. Um, so at that age, I have to call a parent to the police station. So I called mum, and me naively thinking that it would be a great shock for mum, because I, you know, I was, seeing, I was actually new enough then to see the best in people. Um, mum turned up, and uh, I said, um. Um, yeah, really sorry, Emma. This might be a shock for you, but she's been um, arrested for, and I was cut off by Mum slamming a hand on the counter, saying, "You do know she's pregnant, don't you?" And I said, "I didn't. All I know is she's fourteen years old. She's bunking off school. She's getting drunk and robbing shops." And Mum was like, well, "If you harm her or that baby, I'll have your fucking jobs." And it's a threat we hear many times, but uh, <laughs> anyway, any sympathy for Mum went out the window. Um, <laughs> 
Mum was like, how long is this going to take? I'm on a night out tonight. Oh, <laughs> to drink Tubby Katie Blue. Yeah, probably, yeah. Anyway, and in, in the end, I finished with Mum. I was going to get rid of her. And Mum said, and you make sure you give her these and put a pack of 20 cigarettes on the, on the desk. I thought, there's any more confirmation of the bleak future this girl faces. Mm. That was it. So that was, uh, yeah, my first um, experience of the um, sort of the, the dysfunctional families that... Um, this was kind of mum's only concern. I wasn't concerned about uh, her age and bunking off school, robbing shops, just the fact that um, the baby was at risk. And of course, it was our fault somehow. You know that you know, the baby's know. at risk if she smokes those fags. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely ridiculous. The next step then was coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you, do you? Which uh, just just. Which is that? What does that start off with? That's that's chapter. Found out cancer. Laura's cancer. Yeah, Laura's my wife. Um, right. She'd um, with uh, the the previous chapter, I'd just done my uh, mass fatality training, which was um, fantastic course. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then the um, this chapter is that my my wife had been diagnosed with non Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and she'd been given a eighty percent chance of recovery. Um, but it didn't happen. And then on my 43rd birthday, she was at the hospital having some treatment. We had a little birthday party for me in the room, which the, her colleagues had thrown, which was very nice. And the consultant came in and said, can I have the room, please? So these friends all left, just leaving me and my wife. Uh, I knew what's coming. I knew what's coming. And he said, I'm really sorry. So there's nothing more we can do. We've exhausted all the, all the avenues. And we're like, how long has she got? She said, Three months. Um, at this point, the kids were... Six and ten, I think. Um, so this was particularly gutting because just a few months previously, she'd had a accommodation for 20 years service to the Met without one single day sick leave. And then all of a sudden it all come at once in cancer. So I've written about this chapter to um, to highlight the support we got from the Met, which was outstanding. You know, from everything from um, my commander saying, do whatever shifts you want. Be off when you want, work when you want. You can use police vehicles to go and visit in hospital. Just do whatever you need. The HR manager said, you don't live too far from me. If you need help with childcare, just give me a ring. Um, her friends arranged rotors for hospital visits. Um, and I this is I, I believed I was superhuman. I could cope with this. I cope with everything. And I couldn't. I had a breakdown. Uh, which is again I've, I've written about, which is quite hard. Um, and having given, having been given three months life expectancy, she survived just three weeks. Um, and then we had, so um, thank you. We had a, a forced funeral. She was uh, in a guard of honour. Um, all my my team were in white gloves and caps, and she had a, a motorcycle escort. So she was given a, a really good um, funeral um, recognition of her of her service. You know, and then it was like. It's just me and two kids, and then but the the Met are very good at pulling out the stops when they need to, and the, the support I had was was phenomenal, and I uh, eventually got back on my feet, basically. My God, mm. how old was she? Forty three. Forty three. Yeah. So young. Yeah. Oh, mm. good grief. Yes, so- no age at all, and to have a twenty year commendation for no sick leave. It was just a real kick in the teeth. 
Oh my god. Oh bless her. What's it like going back to work with two young kids and single dad? Um it was still not sure entirely how it all came together to, to work, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being um at the time, fortunately, my home where I lived was less than a mile from my police station. So the commute was nice and easy. Um I had good good childminders. Um the my um commander did a, a welfare check on me and he said, you know, what are you do next week? And I said, Well I'm I'm I need to take some special leave because I um I suppose on early shift, but I've, my childminder's got transport problems. He said, What do you want to do? I said, I want to work. I'm climbing the walls at home. So he said, Well, I'll send a police car for your childminder. Does that does that solve it? I was like, Yeah. <laughs> so my childminder got picked up and taken home in the police car. I got to work two shifts and protected my sanity, you know. Protected so sanity. yeah. Wow. But it's um I felt the need to to put this in, partly because it was quite cathartic for me to write, but also because there's so much negativity around the police. Mm. And um they're really good at some things and welfare is one of them. That's good to hear. Mm. Really good. What about the gas explosion? Yeah, that was um, again. I was, um, I think, I was at Hayes Police Station, which is you know in Westland, and a call came into um, uh, Thames Valley Police dealing with a gas explosion. I believe there's fatalities. I thought, oh, this could be interesting. They said the name of the premises, Mister Fizz. I thought that's opposite my house, so I went screaming down there. And um, this um, the fire brigade were they were already there, and. Um, the ambulance crew were carrying this guy out. He had um, leg missing below the above the knee, and he was screaming. And as you can imagine, they're trying to stop the bleeding. Uh, there was another one inside who was apparently dead. The fire brigade wouldn't let me go in; it was too unsafe. So this was outside the Met. Just so Thames Valley Police turned up, and I said, oh, "I'm a I'm a Met sergeant. I'm also a local resident. So what can I do to help?" And he said, "Great, control the crowd." So it was quite surreal because I was manning this cordon. Of crowd, the crowds, and I knew every single one of them because mm-hmm. they were my neighbours. So it's the easiest crowd control I've ever done. <laughs> um, but that was um, that that turned into a health and safety inquiry, uh, which turned out the guy operating the um, it was a, a cylinder refilling factory. They refill cylinders for pubs and anywhere else that needs compressed gases. Um, he'd misread. He'd not been trained properly. Apparently, he'd misread the instructions. He'd set the pressure to 20 times the safe capacity of the cylinder, and it had literally exploded. So the firm ended up getting fined tens of thousands for health and safety breaches. How many fatalities were there? One fatality and one lost leg. Christ. Um, how do you how do you get extreme, extremely good at planning for the last disaster? Yeah, that was... Um, Sorry, gone back a bit. I just... Yeah, that's the, the mass fatality training. Um, to, to go back a bit further, the um, when 7-7 happened, the um, bombings, I was on holiday at the time. Um, when I got back, obviously, almost all the Met were involved in one way or another. It was a massive thing. This is where the 52 civilians and the four terrorists had been blown up on the trains, the tube trains and the bus. Um, my role as a borough response sergeant at the time restricted me to just cordon duty and secure mortuary security and really really mundane stuff um and i i wanted to get more involved so in the aftermath of 7-7 the met realized they were under resourced for mass fatality so they advertised for 
um, 10 sergeants and 50 constables to train as disaster victim recovery officers or disaster DVI, disaster victim identification officers. Um, so I applied along with 2,000 other officers and I, I was accepted as one of the 10 sergeants. So the idea was then we get trained in body recovery to maintain forensic integrity, dignity of the victim. Uh, we would be deployed to scenes of mass fatality to do everything from recovering the body, the body parts, to the mortuary, identification, and then on to um, the inquest and release to the to the families. Um, so the opening of the um, course was by the, the chief superintendent in charge of disaster preparedness. And that's the phrase he said, if um, we're very good at planning for the last disaster. In other words, we're not that good at looking forwards. You know, we, we planned for 7-7 after it happened. We, we, you know, we planned for the Marchioness after it happened. Um, so they were trying to address this shortfall and get ahead of the game by having the trained officers trained up, refreshed regularly, still in their normal day jobs but ready to be deployed at a moment's notice. Um, and it works, and it works really well. And the training was excellent. Um, he, he came up with the phrase about if you have feelings like this is not in my remit or I've not had the training or I don't know how to do that, he said, there's the door. This is not for you. Everyone must be prepared to do everything. If you're um, deployed as the photographer and you're asked to go and pick up body parts, you go and pick up body parts. You don't say it's not in my remit. And that was great for me because I, I, I like all the, the multifaceted stuff like that. <laughs> um so I was um, I did the training and um, then the advanced training and then I was put on the call out list and where I sat for ten years until six months before I re- retired and then um, Tunisia happened. I was um, I was actually off duty in Birmingham with my wife. She was attending a conference and my phone rang. Uh, Is it Sergeant Calvary? Yes, calling from CO three Department of Scotland Yard. You better get your kit and be prepared for de- deployment. So I said, what, what, what's happened? She said, sorry, i got loads of phone calls to make. It's Tunisia. Just check out Sky News. So I checked out Sky News, and it was this um, guy who strolled down the beach in Seuss, pulled an AK-47 out of a parasol, and slaughtered 38 people, of which 30 were UK citizens. So a few days later, I got my deployment. I wasn't going to Tunisia. I was going to uh, be the mortuary team leader at Fulham. So we had very little time to prepare before the stream of hearses started arriving from Bryce Norton um, and then we over about the next week or 10 days we processed all 30 post-mortems um, and <clears throat> that's something that'll stay with me forever is I'd, I've seen lots of injuries on duty um, on people fatal and non-fatal from handguns shotguns knives but until this point never from high velocity rifle rounds Ooh. and I remember being in my white paper forensic suit with my mask and my gloves on, taking a deep breath and opening the first body bag as it when it arrived from Tunisia and just recalling at the the sheer damage that bullet can do, single bullet can do. It was, uh, but we, we got on with it and then we paused for two-minute national nationwide silence, two-minute silence. We were actually in the middle of three post-mortems and we just stopped everything. And that's quite surreal, thinking the whole nation has come to a halt we got three bodies here we got 27 in the fridge and this is who everybody's remembering and we were here we're here in the thick of it wow so the high-powered weapon it just blows holes in the body does it that it does yeah the um um i can't go into too much detail um but but there was um there's there's one one guy who um 
the pathologist said if he'd survived, he would have lost his arm uh, because of the amount of bone that had been taken out. Mm. Wow. So there was an incident whereby you guys spotted an old Nissan Sunny parked next to a highway fence with two hooded men by it. Yes, that was, uh, I was on supervision patrol in um, West Drayton with two of my colleagues, Jess and Pat. In the, I was in the back of the um, BMW area car. Um, there wasn't much happening, so uh, we're just patrolling a few crime hotspots. And we went into this industrial estate in West Drayton and we saw this, we saw this Nissan with two hooded guys stood next to it. So um, on with the blue lights, we launch up and, and block them in straight away. Um, on the other side of the fence was a silver Ford Focus, which switched its lights off and sped away, never to be seen again, or so we thought. Um, <laughs> so we stopped these two. They were two drug addicts, heroin addicts, um, and they were quite candid with us. They said, yeah, we were about to buy from our dealer and you've just messed it up. So we said, right, we're going to take you and the car to the police station for a, a full strip search. Uh, and there were no trouble. So they went in the van, and it was my job to drive, because I was a third officer in the car to drive the Nissan, their back beatable Nissan. So I drove the Nissan back towards the police station to search it, and then a mobile phone rings, and here the old Nokia ringtone. So I'm very careful. I put my hands because it's a junkie's car, and I found this mobile phone under the passenger seat with a number withheld. So I thought, well, what the hell, I might as well go for it. So I answered it and put my best drug-addled voice and went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this guy on the other end, he goes, what the fuck happened there, man? I'm like, well, it was the it was the fuzz, man. They they spooked <laughs> us. I'm trying to think what would what would a, what a drug addict talk like, you know? <laughs> and um, I'm like, but we you know, we're really we're really clucking, man, you know. And this guy on the other end of the phone's like, right, calm down. I'll sort you out. Go to the Toby Carvery in Langley. Okay, don't I'll I won't let you down. It's like, don't don't let me down, man. You know, just be there. Like ten minutes, be there. So I did the call, <laughs> race back to the police station where Pat and Jess are just about to sort out the strip searches. I said, leave it. Get this jailer to it. We've got to go. I'll explain later. We raced out to the car, screaming off to Langley, which is about six miles from West Drayton. Um, Pat cut the twos and blues as we got close, so we didn't make too much noise. Um, and after a few minutes, we were in the car park. We're in a marked police car. It's not ideal, but we had no time to arrange anything else. A silver Ford Focus drives in and tries discreetly to leave again when he sees the police car. So we launch forward and block him in. Jess jumps out gets the driver out, he puts his hand straight up in the air and I didn't notice anything until he heard this metal clang and he'd thrown away a plastic container which had hit the sign that said Toby Carvery. Landed <laughs> landed back at its feet. So unlucky for him. <laughs> so picked it up. It's full of wraps of um, crack and heroin. Oh. So he arrested him and uh, took him back to the police station. And um, back at the police station, the two junkies had been searched they had nothing on them, so they they were outside waiting for the paperwork to be done. Took this guy into custody and told he'd been arrested for possession of drugs with intent to supply. And he sort of, you could see he was asking, how how did you know to come and get me? So I said, give me your phone. So he gave me his phone. I did last number redial, and my body armor started ringing. <laughs> He's like, that was you? He said, yeah, you were talking to me. He said, you fucker. Unlucky. <laughs> Unlucky. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's been your most favourite memory from the police? I think the um, possibly the, um, the, the the Santa arrest on Christmas Day. That was um, <laughs> the uh, and looking back as well, the monkey bite. Funny enough, it's, you know, um, yeah. I've tried to be um, 
in the the book I've tried to be uh, as well as writing about my um, successes I've tried to write about my failures and my shortcomings and embarrassing moments and and the monkey was an embarrassing moment but I can laugh about it now especially as my thumb works again uh, but um, I enjoyed the um, the camaraderie I enjoyed uh, working with a lot of the um, a lot of the people and the fast driving I love the fast driving they even tried to get you out of retirement yes yeah yeah um the um two three years after retirement um when um came back from holiday there was a letter waiting for us from the commissioner asking um would you consider rejoining the met and either a a behaid or a voluntary role um and i did give it i i've 99% 99% sure the answer is going to be no, but I did work out the figures and everything um, and the implications. You could return at your original rank, so I'd return as a sergeant, but you could be posted anywhere. You could be posted to the far side of London. Um, you would have to pause your pension, which I was already receiving, and um, it basically worked out. I would have a 200-mile-a-day commute for a £1,000 a month. So I thought, you're not really making this attractive enough for me. So I uh, decided to give it a miss, and uh, I've um, I've had my 30 years, and I loved every minute of it. Well, coming up to the end of your time there, you have an incident with a guy threatening to throw himself off the M4. Yeah, this is my um, second attempt to uh, prevent a suicide. Um, the, 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 uh, I'll come back to the first one, which is quite embarrassing, but I'm sure you'll hear about it. Mm-hmm. Um, this was um, the uh, a bridge over Junction 4, I think, near Heathrow Airport, uh, so a 15-meter drop onto tarmac, and this guy was, um, yes, literally threatening to jump off, off the off the parapet onto the road down below. So um, we got the got the road closed, which saying closing a, a motorway in rush hour London is a really eerie silence. It's very strange, and we, myself and my colleague Scott, had pro- we approached from different sides to this guy. And it's, there's a huge pressure knowing that one wrong move, wrong wrong tone of voice could make him jump. And so we're trying to get a rapport going with this guy, uh, trying to get him to safety before we start um, getting into the details of what's actually going on. Um, unfortunately, Emirates Airways came to our rescue because they landed a 380 over our heads at Heathrow. And it's just sufficient distraction for him to look up and us to grab him. Wow. So just a split second. So we drag him. He's only a, a small bloke. So we pulled him back and um, into the ambulance and, and away. And he was off to hospital again for the necessary mental health treatment. Um, the first incident was many years before when a, a young girl um, was standing on a, a window ledge, um, threatening to jump. And so I went up into the room, first of all, room to speak to her while my colleague wait downstairs on the pavement to try and keep crowds away and I was talking to her through this window uh, she's 14 years old and she was high on something um, as well as alcohol um, her mum who was into her in the building was totally disinterested um, what is it with 14 year olds and their mums I don't know mm. so I was talking to her trying to get a rapport going through this window this open window and um it wasn't going very well. And then she, her eyes shut and she started to sway. And I thought she's going to pass out. So I thought it's now or never. So I made a grab for her. But all I did was push her off. I misjudged it. Um, so she fell down to the pavement. And my I, I just heard this sickening thud. She hit the oh. pavement. Uh, my colleague, who was who was um, holding back the crowds, 
It's like, stand back, stand back, I'm a first aider. And he went straight away to try and give her mouth to mouth. You know, she woke up and punched him in the face. Because all, all she actually had was a sprained ankle. No just, way. So, yeah. So it was... Um, oh, shit. So lucky. So she was, again, she was trussed up and put in an ambulance to take off to the hospital. I went back into to speak to mum and I said, look, she's, okay, she's, 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 she's jumped off the ledge, but it's only the first floor. She seems to be okay, a bit of a problem with her ankle. So hopefully we'll get her the treatment she needed. And... Um, you know, and she'll hopefully that'll be fine. And mum's response was, Did you shut that window? Bloody draft blowing <laughs> oh. through here. I'm on the sick, you know. So I no, I, I didn't know and I don't care personally, you know. Oh boy. So that that was my first attempt at suicide prevention. So on the M four, twenty odd years later, I feel I redeemed myself a little bit. Most definitely. Wow. So on the news all the time we see like knife crime and the rise of the drug gangs. Yeah. Have you experienced that firsthand, like the, the violence increasing in these drug gangs in London? Certainly the, not specifically the drug gangs, but certainly gangs mm-hmm. and the knife crime. And there's, um, to me, there, there's two um, very good reasons for it. Um, if you look at the figures, uh, up until about 2013, 2014, knife crime was going down in London. And then 2014, 2015, uh, two things happened. Um, first of all, was the, the mayoral candidate, Sadiq Khan, said in his election manifesto, if elected, I will do everything in my power to cut, stop and search. And the second thing, which to me was harebrained stupidity, was a senior officer in the Met, in an attempt to make stop and search more targeted and more relevant, declared that um, any officer, any stop and search that didn't yield a result, that didn't yield weapons, drugs, stolen property, would be recorded as a negative performance indicator against the officer. So many officers, including me, were like, I am not doing any more stop and search. The upshot of this, this was a short-term gain for long-term pain, which the Met is very good at, or was. The upshot was crime went down because possession of offensive weapons, possession of drugs weren't getting detected. So therefore the overall crime was going down. Since then, we've only got to look at the news to see what's happened to knife crime. And there's been interviews with uh, disaffected youths, gang members, saying that when they're going out their property, going out on the streets, they will check they've got a knife as readily as they'll check they've got a mobile phone because they know the police won't search them. So um, this tied in um, in the the same sort of period with a rise in moped crime, um, which I was able to personally challenge the commissioner on at one of his meetings. I'd introduced myself as a traffic sergeant uh, responsible for, I was a tactical pursuit advisor, responsible for dealing with crashes after police pursuits. Um, so I was basically in that role. And I said, we are completely impotent, tactically impotent when it comes to dealing with moped crime. Um, as, a, as a police officer, I will chase somebody on foot and rugby tackle him and arrest him. And he might get some bumps and scrapes and that's fine. But I stick a moped between his legs and he's got this immunity around him. We can't knock them off. We can't even block the road. If you block the road, there's a moped coming through. You're facing a gross misconduct hearing. We There is nothing we can do. And they know this, and they're laughing at us. And the commissioner was sort of... He responded as I expect him to, which was like, well, we have a, a duty of care to these people. Mopeds are dangerous things, you know. We, we, but new tactics are emerging. I didn't believe him, but he was right. New tactics did emerge, and now you see on the news, mopeds are getting knocked off. Um, They're getting blocked in. These users are getting arrested. And funny enough, moped crime went down 50% in the first year. There's there's no coincidence. Um, 
just before I retired, there was a incident in um, a a moped involved in robberies in central London, where um, the this is before I spoke to the commissioner, and this is partly what prompted me to speak to the commissioner. Um, the King's Cross one-way system in London, uh, the, this moped had been involved in several robberies, and the police car had spotted it and given chase. And there's a passerby who was had a broken leg, he was on crutches, and he was watching this chase go round and round the one-way system two or three times. On the third attempt, as it came past, he walked into the road using his crutch as a baseball bat and knocked this moped rider off with such shock that the moped rider actually wet his trousers. Wow. So I was, because this counts as a collision after a police chase, I was called to the scene to, to deal with it, and I spoke to this guy. And uh, this guy on the broken leg, with the broken leg, he was worried he might be in trouble. And I'm like, no, you're covered by Section 3 of the Criminal Law Act 1977 using reasonable force, um, which applies to any person, not just a police officer. He said, I'd watch your officers chasing that little twat for 10 minutes. They had ample opportunity to knock him off, ample opportunity to, to, to block him in, and they didn't. They just sat behind him and followed him. And I said, that's all they're allowed to do. Mm. Uh, but that started me thinking. So then when when I got called to a commissioner's breakfast meeting, as they were called, I thought, I'm going to do something about this. Um, I was behind the game because he told me that tactics were already being developed for tactical contact and everything. Um, but I like, you know, to think I'd rattle his cage a little bit um, because, well, that's what I was told. Next day I was called in to see my own chief inspector and said, what the hell have you done? Have you been rattling the commissioner's cage about mopeds? I said, um, yeah. He said, my bloody phone hasn't stopped ringing all morning. <laughs> so, oh, when did your problem become my problem, you know? <laughs> Good grief, mm. what a journey. Mm. Yeah, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And for people watching, if you want the journey in much more detail with many, many more stories, check out Cops and Horrors, the book, available worldwide on Amazon. Amazon, Mirror Books, WH Smith, Waterstones, and all the usual outlets. It's everywhere. It's everywhere, yes. <laughs> 12 different what, countries. What, what led you to write the book then, Matt? My wife, mainly. Um, I was... Um, I, 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 my kids, from a very young age, had liked hearing police stories. You know, um, My wife's heard the stories many times. Then she told me several times, she said, you should write a book. You've got lots of stories. You should write a book. And she'd said this several times, but it was only on the flight back from Cuba three years after I'd retired when she's like, for God's sake, just write it down. <laughs> so I started writing it down and eventually came up with um, the combination of what I could remember, the stuff that never stayed with me. Um, the Met very kindly sent me my service record with all my commendations, injuries on duty, which helped me do a timeline. Uh, British newspaper archives and some Googling. I put together the, the timeline and the framework of everything that happened. Um, and realised I had a total of 340 stories. So I've put 140 in this book, working with um, Nicholas Stowe, who's an award-winning ghostwriter, best-selling ghostwriter. Um, and we've... So there's fewer than half of the total stories in this book, which which may lead to the possibility of a sequel, depending on how successful this is. But that would need to be thrashed oh. out with the publisher and the ghostwriter. I can't see how it cannot succeed after what we've heard today. And Most definitely. Reading it myself. It is a hair-raising, heartbreaking, at times hilarious autobiography. I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. Yes, I really did. Thank Good. you. Thank you. I breathe in, exhale, slip my bloody truncheon into its pocket and suddenly realise this is my job for the next 30 years. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so please let us know what you thought about today's video. All the links will be in the description box below. 
Cheers, Matt. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good to Thank you. Thank you. So much. Oh, that was well done, Matt. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, fantastic. Here at Boomer and Jen, we offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Jen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textiles Standard Association. Check us out on Organic Cotton Clothing this podcast is sponsored by Gadfly Press. We are proud to announce the publication of Britain's number one art forger, Max Brandert, The Life of a Cheeky Faker. And from the back cover blurb, Max the Forger is an artist and gentleman whose colourful lifestyle has spanned over 70 years. He has lived under the strict regime of Bernardo's children's homes, been an elephant handler in the circus, lived rough, busked his way from Brighton to Bombay, sold his fakes up and down the country, dined with dukes, socialized with celebrities, associated with gangsters, served time in prison, and donated tens of thousands to charity. And through it all, he has never stopped smiling and loving life and missing his mum. Quote from the book. Mr. Brandert, I do not see you as a malicious criminal, sighed the judge. But why, oh why, do you continue to use your God-given talent in this way? I just can't help myself, Your Honor. It's like an addiction, I grinned. Available worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box below this video. Thank you for supporting our sponsor. <laughs>